You're listening to Earnestly Speaking, the only weekly podcast that covers friends, foes, and anything that goes. And now, for your badass host, Ernest Owens. And we're back for another episode of Earnestly Speaking with your host, Ernest Owens, myself. <laughs> well, it has been a lovely, lovely week. Um... Well, this past weekend was lovely. As many people are probably listening to this episode during um, President's Day, I enjoyed a lovely President's Day weekend, or as I would call it, Mr. Johnson weekend. Um, enjoying being indoors, snuggling at the Ritz-Carlton in Center City, um, because, of course, as you all know, this past week was anniversary week, love week, all of the things. Um, of course, last week we celebrated our 10-year anniversary as a couple, um, which was quite romantic. Valentine's Day, which was the day before Valentine's Day, February 13th. And then we have Valentine's Day, which we celebrated at Posiano Coast, which was um, really nice. It's an old city, a great restaurant, um, and very romantic. They did a really nice romantic candlelit dinner situation, which was really nice. It was very spacious, great food, good menu, you know, nothing... Nothing that isn't above, um, you know, high standards. It was a really nice restaurant, really nice energy and flow. I hadn't been there a little bit um, in a while, but I really enjoyed it. Really did. Um, it's like a Mediterranean Greek mix. There's like, you know, traditional favorites. Um, but it was always a place I used to go to for brunch many years ago, but I hadn't done dinner in a while. And Everything was popping. I really did. They had the squid ink pasta. They had, um, I had a lamb shank, I believe I had. Mr. Johnson had a bone in, um, what was it chicken parmesan bone in? And it was a big ass piece of chicken. It was really good. Um, and then we had a really great dessert and it was fabulous. Um, and then of course we, we headed into the weekend and, that's when things really took off. Um, his birthday is on February 17th, which is the anniversary of Destiny's Child, apparently. February 17th, 1998, they dropped their first debut single as a group. And so I just found that out over the weekend because I was doing a lot of research into Kelly Rowland. More on that later. Um, but, you know, it was a very just lovely time. We spent the weekend at the Ritz-Carlton, which I've never stayed in this hotel before it. Um, all my years in Philly, I never stayed here, but I get it. It's really ritzy at the Ritz-Carlton. So we did it really nice. We got a really lovely um, suite and we were on the 24th floor. We overlooked everything. Lovely ass suite. Really, really nice suite. Um, I mean, this place is like, I mean, it's it's crazy. We did like an all-inclusive package. So we got access to the club lounge, which is on the, which is on the 30th floor. And the club lounge is popping because basically this is a private upstairs lounge that like has unlimited cocktails, you know, bottled drinks, uh, yogurt, snacks, all of this stuff. But throughout the day, they do all these different rounds of hot meals. So in the morning from like 7 a.m. to 10 a.m., there's like breakfast and brunch. You just go up there and you can just have a good old time. And then they have lunch in the afternoon where they have a selection of things to eat for lunch. And then the midday is like a little happy hour hors d'oeuvres where they have all these really nice, you know, uh, gourmet cooked um, 
hors d'oeuvres. And of course, there's cocktails and drinks throughout the whole entire day. And then they have dinner in the evening and dessert. Um, and everything closes at like 10 p.m. as far as the food portion. Um, we already had dinner reservations for the nights we stayed. But let me tell you something. We did not sweat on that brunch and that lunch situation. So every night that we stayed, we stayed for about, I think we stayed two nights. Um, we had, you know, brunch in the morning, which was really good. They had a whole omelet station, everything. Like, it was grand. And now this is interesting because for people who are like, oh, well, what about downstairs? So downstairs is Aquamino. That's its own situation. That is for the public. Anybody can go down there if you are a person who do have a, um, a, a stay, you could stay there and put it on your tab. Like all of that is still connected to the hotel, but that club lounge, no one can go up there unless you are someone who has access. And even if you have a reservation to Ritz Carlton, it's not you're not guaranteed automatically. It is a special situation that you have to request in, in your package. So I appreciate it. And also what I loved about it is you cannot do phone conversations in the club lounge. So it is very much a place for you to mix and mingle. You know, you can take pictures. You can do all that. Lovely TVs, lovely view of the city. Like we're, we're in the heart. So we can see the whole, you know, uh, city hall building and everything on the side that we were on. It's really nice. It, it, it was a very, the bed, the service. The fridge, when we got here, there was a bottle of bubbly waiting for us, flute glasses. They had this really beautiful, artistic, like, custom-made cake um, that was like a little birthday cake that we shared with each other. And it was just so romantic. And it, it was just, I mean, the bathroom alone was just gorgeous. Like, it was a very good time. And, of course, he turned 29, so... He did not want to do like a big old party. I think he was like, oh, I'm turning 29. I don't want to say he felt like it was a throwaway year, but he was just kind of like, oh, it's 29. I'm like, in my mind, I was like, that's the last year of your 20s. So like, you know, but he was like, he just wanted to do something just more chill and laid back. So we just made it a couple's uh, getaway, like a staycation situation, which I love a good staycation. And we hadn't really done one in a while because We've done a lot of traveling at the book tour. We've just thrown parties. So it reminded me of our earlier years when we were first dating and we were doing staycations. And the way we would do it was we used to always go to the AKA in University City, which I still love that hotel down. And what we would do is we would like do the first night. We'll do a BYOB dinner with friends. Um, and then we would have like a party inside the suite we were at in the hotel. And then the next night we would just, just have the whole, you know, time to ourselves, relaxing, resting, chilling. And they would go out to eat that night and then we'll go do brunch or something together as a couple. And they would check out the next day. That was always like how we used to do it. But this time around, we just, it's just us. Like a lot of our friends went out of town, you know, the straights went out to Poconos with their straights from other areas, you know, doing that. Um, but we just enjoyed our staycation. It was just really fun to just relax and it's funny like when you're in a hotel and you treat the city like you're a tourist it's it's a different experience and um really loved it really really enjoyed the rest the time to just cuddle and you know all that stuff but i also want to say it was a little bittersweet to hear the news entree byob um is going to go away they're they're going to close their doors after 10 years of existence, um, BYOB, Entree BYOB is no more. 
to a lot of my friends who have been friends with me over the years. Y'all know how much Entree was one of my all-time favorites. Like, next to George Joan Pine, I would cry right now. Like, this was a B- an iconic BYOB. Um, you know, there are some that might listen and even be shocked that I'm disappointed and still saddened by the closure of Beijing. You can call it cheap Chinese, but it was great Chinese. And it was a great Chinese restaurant. And it was a great BYOB. College memories were had there. But that closed, um, I want to say about a year ago. But Entree just closed. And I am just devastated because that was a restaurant. Like last year, my, I took my my brother, my mom, my brother, both of my brothers and my mom um, there when we were in town, when they were in town for the book tour. And that was like a year ago. And it was popping. It was bodies in there. Um, one thing I loved about Entree was that they had a thing for, you went in there and they had a really great set price menu. So they used to have the $50 one. And I think they had like the $35 one. I think that was, but it was like a prefix. But they would let you pick different options. And the portions were very generous. Everything tastes good. Um, the setting and the ambiance was always like a whole in raw vibe. But the food was so good and the prices were so fair that you could never feel any type of way. Like anybody who felt, anybody who would feel a type of way about entree was just dead cheap. That was always the go-to place. Anytime I had friends that came out of town, they wanted to get a Philly experience. That was like my go-to place next to Georgia on Pine. Like those were always my two, you know, go-to. So to see entree gone is just sad. Um, and there's just been all these sporadic restaurant closings that have happened recently. And there's just not, there's not going to be anything like that place. I just, it's just sad. But um, in other good news, or in better news, um, birthday dinner for Mr. Johnson was at Co-op, which is in University City. It's around Drexel's campus. Okay, this restaurant, y'all, is just a standout. I don't think a lot of people know about it because they think it's like, oh, it's a typical campus restaurant, but it's not. It really isn't. It is a very good restaurant. One of the best restaurants, I want to say it's one of the best restaurants in University City, West Philly, period. It is a top tier experience. It's not like hot fine dining where everything's super expensive and ridiculous, but it's a really relaxed restaurant that takes its cooking very seriously. What I like about the restaurant is, first of all, it's new American cuisine, is that they're like very focused on seasonal ingredients. Everything they do is in season. Everything they do is locally sourced. It's farm to table energy. Everything is so damn good and so, um, how did my husband describe it? He described it as being very much in sync. It was a very in sync menu. Like everything had a rhyme or reason. Everything fouled off each other in a taste palette. And I love that. Like, so for example, they're really big on seasonal uh, fruits and vegetables. So plum is in season and they use these really good locally sourced plums that were in New Jersey that was in Cape May. There's a plum farm in Cape May where they got these uh, plums. And they made this really good stone fruit salad that, of course, plum plums are stone fruits or is a stone fruit. And they used it to make this really great salad. 
and it was a savory taste. They like charred the the, the plums a little bit, gave it like a, a nice little a little a little sear, and it caramelized with this burrata. It was fabulous. It was fabulous with watercress on top. It was a divine salad. But then another giveaway was that they had a plum cocktail that was to die for. It was an incredible cocktail that was really sweet and had a tanginess to it, but it was based with rum. It was delicious. And I used those plums to make that cocktail. Dessert, they had a plum sorbet. Y'all, it was incredible. And then they had other seasonal things. Like they did a lot of things with pumpkin and squash and other seasonal type of vegetables that was incorporated throughout the food. Um, I had the petite steak, which was really good. And Mr. Johnson had the short rib with the polenta, I believe it was. And that was incredible as well. Like everything on that menu was just so good and so fun and healthy and just good food. Well seasoned, well cooked. Well portioned, great bang for your buck. And for people that live in West Philly, University City area, that always feel like you got to go super, super far to Center City to have that kind of cuisine, you don't. You really don't. It's like right here on 33rd around Chestnut. Like it's right there. And it's it's so subtle because it's connected to the study, which is like the inn at Penn for Drexel. But I think a little bit more subtle and lavish. Um, like a like Drexel, that area is more um minimalist comfort vibes versus Penn's energy is very, you know, super elegant, super, you know, gosh, you know, super in your face, very, very gosh, um, got type of, you know, we we want you to know the prestige. We want you to know it's a, a Louis bag. It's not like a black Prada bag that isn't super Prada, you know. Well, well, Prada bags, if you get a nice black one, right? It's subtle. This is not that. Like, it's more like a Louis Vuitton is how I describe in a pen. I would describe the study and co-op as being like a Prada bag, like a black Prada bag, where if you know, you know, but it's not like super, you know, in your face. So I, I really um, appreciated it. I thought the food was good. Definitely want to see what they're giving for happy, happy hour, but also want to see what they're giving for brunch, because I feel like that energy they have is great. You know, I'm going to throw some shade for people that remember this restaurant. I think that that is what Harvest thought they were or was trying to initially be when it was on 40th in University City. I think that co-op is everything that we all thought Harvest was going to be or should have been, except better ingredients, better flow. And there's a bunch of Harvests throughout you know, the Jersey, greater Philadelphia area, Pennsylvania suburbs. But Harvest just didn't hit it off in University City. I think, you know, the appetites of college students, you know, there's like room for one restaurant like that, but you can have a bunch. And co-op has been able to succeed because they do incorporate students at Drexel's interest in culinary um, art. So like the pastry chef currently at co-op is a college student. And the pastries and the desserts that are coming out of that place, I did not know it was a college student behind it. Like, this person is so good. They're 21 years old, and they're going to go in the summer and intern at a Michelin, a three-star Michelin, three-star restaurant somewhere in Europe, I believe. Like, it's wild. This person, whoever is this pastry chef that is inside of that kitchen at Co-op is probably going to be the next big thing down the road. I just... 
Like they're making some desserts in there that are phenomenal. There was a, I tried another dessert. It was a, it was a tart. It was like a curd tart that had all types of seasonal. I think they had a plum reduction in that sauce, I believe. Again, using these these simple ingredients that are seasonal to create a themed menu is just phenomenal. Anyway, love co-op, love it to death. So I also went to Sunday, we kept the vibes going. Oh, 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 I Floridian slip. Friday night, we went to Liver 2 in East Pashuk, and that was incredible as well. That was an Italian restaurant. It's not BYOB, but you don't want it to be BYOB because it's so Italian. It's so Italian in a good way. Like they, oh my goodness, so traditional Italian, Sicilian energy. I mean, they had slow roasted rabbit, which is what I had for dinner. They had really great seafood. Um, Mr. Johnson had the flute. We had pasta, handmade pasta, baby. Like, they weren't playing over there. They had this, um, I think it was a single-strand noodle that's really thick and hot and, and, and very hollow, and it was good. Oh, it was a really good noodle, real good chewy noodle that wasn't weak. Oh, so good. We had um, some other great dishes that we tried, lots of ingredients, lots of mushrooms and truffle. Oh my God, truffle was on everything. Um, fabulous, fabulous time. Great, great drinks. Great Italian, very strictly Italian. Like lots of Amaro, lots of, um, what was the other one we had? We had lots of ap Aperol, lots of spritz. Very Italian in a good way. Um, don't sleep on Lever 2. Lever 2. L-E, and then the next word is V. I R T U. Liver two. Very great restaurant, East Pass Young. Highly recommended. Make reservations. It was a really great time. And I, you know, listen, there are times in Philly where I feel like, oh my God, too much Italian. I'm going to get overwhelmed. But this is one of those places that do it so authentic and do it so unique that it didn't feel like I was at another Italian restaurant. Like there are some places that are like so classic Italian where you had one, you had them all. But this place was just so magical, so magical. So on Sunday, we kept the good vibes going. We went to Irwin's, but we didn't go to Irwin's traditionally. We did Salvador's Table. Salvador's Table, which is, you know, um, the owner um, who owns um, Irwin's. This is his dream. It's a Sicilian restaurant, a bar. Um, I think, it, and it's at, you know, um really great place that is at um, the Bach building, which I used to always be, um, you know, kind of like what's going on. Um, but the Bach building has adjusted. So Michael Vincent, um, Michael Vincent Ferrari, um, he owns Irwin's, right? And he has his new restaurant, that's called Salvatore's, not Salvador. Salvatore's, uh, Salvatore's, or Salvatore's uh, counter, and this is a it's, it's a Sicilian restaurant, and it and I broke the story um, back in October, the day before my birthday. Interesting. It was back in October where I announced this, um, so it's been a while, and it is in the Bach Building, Salvatore's counter. It's an intimate four seat, ten course dining experience. It's not cheap. It's 180 per person. 
But since November, they've been doing this um, every other Sunday. And it's been an experience because basically it's a special Sicilian menu that never repeats itself. So what you eat in that moment at that table, it's a bar seating. It's a special intimate dinner. What you eat at that dinner, that menu, it's never going to be repeated. There's no repeats. So if somebody, you know, say they went to Salvatore's table, you know, in December, what you are going to have in March ain't going to be the same, right? So I know that they're planning to, this has been a hit. It's been selling out the rest of this, this, this table. It's interesting. It's fascinating. It's monumental. And the experience I had there um, was breathtaking. I mean, you go to my Instagram, you see my IG. Y'all saw. Um, definitely probably the biggest, boldest dinner experience I've had this year so far in 2024. Now, we are in February, so, you know, some of y'all might say pipe down, but I will say so far this year, this is definitely going to be in my top five, but I never know. Anything can happen. Anything can happen. But I, I I feel like so far it's in the top five. Uh, well, there's nothing else on the calendar except Salvatore's table um, in my top five. If I was to pick top big ones, but I know, I don't know, I don't know if anything can 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 knock it out the top five. Right now it's my number one, but you know anything can happen. But it's definitely an experience, and if you can do it, do it. You know. It is worth the splurge. What I will tell you all in advance, book in advance. Um, they are on Resi right now. So you can go to Resi's and make reservations. Um, I don't know if it's every Sunday again or rotation-wise. I think it is. Because I know at first it was every other Sunday. But I know they're trying to make it more, more frequent. So it will still, like, it won't be every day of the week. Because clearly, you know, that's just a whole nother beast. But I think the goal is to have it every Sunday and, you know, open up reservations. But it is a it is an experience. Come hungry. You know, we we kept that, you know, Sunday for our brunch. We kept our, our Sunday brunch a little light because I wanted to keep my appetite for that. I didn't want to I didn't want to get to, you know, 10 courses, baby. 10 courses. You got to pace yourself. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. And the wine, the cocktails, too, baby. It was definitely a spin. But it was worth it because, you know, when you're when you when you've been with somebody for so long, you know, we talking a decade, we in the double digits now. You know, you you know, new rules, new rules, new rules. You know, if, if you just in your first year, nah. Five years, yeah, yeah, I would say. Um, ten years, you know, this is what you do. You know, you at that decade. You know, about a third of my life I've been with this man. Yeah. You're gonna, you gonna, you gonna, you gonna do it different. You're gonna, you're gonna do it big. So fabulous dinner. I mean, I won't even I won't even go into what was on the menu because I mean it may not be on the menu you might go to. Clearly it won't be the same menu. But what I will say is the pasta, top of the charts, any type of red meat, get it. Caviar, seafood, get it. 
everything. Eat the whole plate. Lick the plate clean. I, I want to be a barbarian at one point. It was so good. There was times where I was looking at that plate like, this sauce, this sauce is so good that I want to lick the plate. And, and, and there was a moment, y'all, where I looked to my left and looked to my right because, we, you know, we had a little section. I was like, I can't do it. I can't. You know, I'm now food. I'm public now. Somebody, somebody, you know what I'm saying? I, I can't. I can't show my ass. But listen, let me have been just a regular degla dude out here. I wouldn't have cared. I would have been shameless. I wanted to lick the whole plate off. But I just said, you know what? I'm going to do what I can with this spoon and, and, be, and keep it classy. But it was hard. It was hard. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's... <laughs> It's fun. It, it was it was very fun. Um, it was very fun. So, in other news, um, what else? Oh, what did I get him for his birthday? Um, I won't share what I got him for his birthday um, because it was a very special gift, and I think it's a little too much for this show. But what I will say is. Hmm. Dr. Parks, Amanda knows what the gift is. And um, he was so excited when he got it. Um, and uh, yeah, it was not cheap, but it was worth it. And he really, 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 really liked it. And I think, yeah, I'll leave it there. She knows what it is. She knows what it is. <laughs> Joe knows what it is, too. All right. So in other news, um, hmm. Some news came, some big news. I was surprised by how fast the announcement came. But I will be hosting. I will be the master of ceremonies for a TEDx conference. So on May 11th, which is on, uh, which is May 11th, um, TEDx Dilworth Park is happening. And there's going to be a great slate of great speakers from around the region. There's going to be participating in this incredible um, conference that is going to be taking place on May 11th. Tickets are available now, but I hear they're like, I don't know. It might be sold out. I don't know. Check it out. Put in TEDx Dilworth Park. This is in Philadelphia, May 11th. Google it, look it up to see if you can still get whatever tickets are left. But tickets might be sold out because the news came out on Friday that I was going to be the MC of the conference. And baby, the way that y'all cut up on the internet, Child, the tickets were selling, selling like hot cookies, hot cakes. Jamarcus, I got you. You're going to be my plus one because I couldn't even get a whole bunch of tickets. Um, they wouldn't let me get a bunch of tickets. They were like, well, they got to sell their tickets. And I get that. So I wasn't being a diva. But I did get a plus one. And Jamarcus was just like jumped on IG was like, I want to go. He said, and I was like, OK, so you're going with me, bestie. We're going together. Um. Yeah, <laughs> I'm super excited about this. Um, I got hit up to audition. Like they said, it was audition. They was looking for talent. And, you know, I was like, why not? Like I've always had aspirations to participate in TED Talk. Um, but I never knew, you know, what I would do, what would I write about, what would I speak about. Um, I mean, if you was to ask me today what would be my TED Talk, I think I know what my TED Talk would be about because um, I wrote a book. <clears throat> so now I know what I would talk about, right? But 
this opportunity to MC it was like dope because I'm like always want to do something that's like different. Like I don't want to do exactly something identical. And I was like, wow, like I like hosting things. I think I'm a great host. If anybody ever seen me MC an event, which I rarely do, but when I do, I'm pretty good at it. I'm used to being a panelist. I'm used to being, you know, a keynote speaker. And that's dope too, because we love a keynote bag. I just did one last week for a company and that coin was cute. Now, that wasn't even cute. That was a gorgeous coin. Let me take that back. There was some zeros on the thousands. It was a very great, a very, very great speaking engagement, actually. Came right in time for tax season because I have to pay taxes. But um, <laughs> but I really, I, I, I've always wanted to be involved with a TEDx situation, but I never knew, you know, what the process was like. I mean, I've helped other people in the past with their speeches and and how to do it. So I, I, I knew about the behind the scenes. But I never knew if there was any opportunities in Philly and how I would like to show up in Philly and do it and that there'll be interest. But when I heard specifically about the opportunity to be the MC for the event, I said, wow, that's a dope. That's dope. Like, I don't know anyone's MC to TED Talk. Like, I don't know anybody personally who's done it. I know people who've spoken, but I don't know anyone who's ever done that. So that just felt like ghosts. And so... Um, I did an interview. I, I did the process. It wasn't just a simple, you know, I want to do it. Yeah, we love you, Ernest. It was a, you know, I do an interview. I do all that stuff. And they hit me up, you know, later in the week, said, listen, we was really feeling you. We'd love to give you this invitation. I was like, say less. I'm in there. And I think the cool thing about it was that I had some speaking engagement chops under my belt. You know, I have a great, I had an agent. Um, and I, and I got a really good team. And I also think that a lot of these spaces are looking for diverse voices to do it because, you know, Dilworth Park, and this is center city pretty much it, you know, it's, it's a certain type that's always doing these types of events. And it was just refreshing to be a young person, to do it, to be somebody that people didn't expect. I, I didn't think no one expected it to happen. And quite frankly, I was shocked to be honest, because, you know, it's one of them things where, you know, it's like, I'm going to do, you know, I'll throw my shot, you know, but you you never know, you know, you just never know how this kind of stuff plays out. So shooting your shot, I always tell people, just, you know, sometimes, you know, if, if it makes sense, why not? And I think that's where my head is. Like, I don't shoot my shot for things that just seems like, now be real, right? But there are things where I'm like, this makes sense. I could do it. I can do it. I should do it. And if it doesn't happen, it don't happen. But this does look good. And so my headspace was when I saw the opportunity, I was like, why not? I could do this and I would kill it. And now I'm telling you all, I'm going to do it and I'm going to kill it. So, you know, wherever that takes you in inspiration, I hope it makes you think whatever opportunities, things you're thinking about that is in your, you know, your wheelhouse, shoot your shot. It doesn't hurt. You know, I've, I've, I've definitely have leaned in this year and said yes to things. And I've definitely have said no to things because we got a story to talk about later today about saying no to some things. Okay. So we're going to move on. So the hot topics, what is hot right now? Oh my goodness. So much. I have to talk about, um, this Trump situation. Are y'all paying attention? I don't know if you all are paying attention. And I get it because 
<coughs> chasing Trump, as I call it, not chasing Amy, chasing Trump has been an obstacle course, like really trying to track this white man down on his fraudulence and his bullshit is a never ending quest. But fortunately, you have a great podcast like mine that you can listen to at the beginning of the week where I try my best to explain this to you all like we're at a happy hour with my friends, okay? So pretty much two big things happened last week, or yes, about this this Trump stuff. Trump was, you know, had a civil suit, a civil case, <coughs> where he was found responsible for misleading the public, investors and folks around his the his financial stature. Basically, his company, the Trump Organization, him, his sons, okay, Eric and Trump Jr., basically were over embellishing the details of their assets, properties, and things like that. So Trump was always acting like the way he had was bigger than what it was. And when you overvalue things, it will allow people to invest more because they're going to think they're going to get more bang for their buck. People got defrauded. People got fucked over. There was misinformation. And this was going on without any checks and balances. And so a judge found him responsible for this. The judge was like, you, you lied. You, you basically lied. And you, it ain't right. And basically the judge was like, you know, you have to pay a fine for that. You know, you just cannot, you know, do what you do. So let's be very clear what this, what happened. You know, the state judge in New York, um, ordered Trump to pay penalties of basically nearly $355 million. Now, reported in the New York Times, they were basically saying that this was because he was engaging in years of fraud by lying about the value of his real estate portfolio. So not only did he get this big-ass $355 million fine, he also, um, the judge, which his name is Arthur um, in Goran gone or Irogron, um, basically barred Trump from running any New York company or business, including the Trump organization, which is his own business, for three years. His sons also are in trouble. Um, they also have consequences. Um, the judge basically said that their complete lack, quote, their complete lack of contrition or remorse border on the pathological. He was not holding back any punches. They are also um, going to get in some trouble um, behind this. They basically, I believe, also have a penalty. I think they can't have a they can't run a business for, I believe, two years. Um, now, Trump, of course, has basically denied a lot of this. Um, his lawyer, Alina Haba, has said that this is, quote, um, manifest injustice. Plain and simple, it is a culmination of a multi-year politically fueled witch hunt that was designed to take down Donald Trump before Letitia James ever stepped foot into the attorney general's office. Countless hours of testimony proved that there was no wrongdoing, no crime, and no victim. That's what he says, or she says, right? But the judge says otherwise. And as a result, Trump has to now fork over $355 million. Now, Trump is going to appeal this. That's what he claims. Um, and as a result of the appeal, he's hoping that that would be able to save him. That's what Trump has done. When he's found guilty, when he's found accountable for something, he tries to appeal. With the E.G. Carroll situation, the woman that he, I can now say, 
based on a decision by the courts and by the jury, sexually assaulted and defamed, and he was charged 80-something million dollars that he's paid his woman back. He has to not pay back, but pay for his reckless behavior. Um, he threatened to appeal that. But you can try to appeal all day, but at the end of the day, deciding to appeal and doing appeals does not reverse the course of nature on what happens until then. So this was a big deal because Trump's whole persona for a long time has been that he has the art of the deal. Now, Leticia James, the attorney general, who I kept telling y'all, there will be a black woman who will stick it to where it hurts. This is the biggest financial fine blow. And the fact that not only did Donald Trump get fined, but this man cannot do business in New York for three years. He is not New York City, New York State. That includes New York City, Albany, Rochester, you name it. He can't do business in New York City. Okay? Get the fuck up out of New York is what is what the energy is giving. This is New York. Fuck I look like giving a smack. Like this is... This is New York telling him they don't want to do deal with him. You know, you, 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 you are supposed to be the king of New York and you can no longer be a king. He's been decrowned. He's been dethroned. He doesn't, he can't do shit. Which is going to get to some other issues. But Leticia James was talking about the art of the deal, the art of the fraud, the art of the scam. She was dragging him in her um, press briefing that she did. But she went in and after many years of him bullying her in the press and, you know, disrespecting her, she got the last laugh. She got her. She, she did her big one. Now there's a lawsuit with Alvin Bragg, who's the district attorney of Manhattan. The attorney general won. Now is a black man, Alvin Bragg. Trump got another lawsuit coming up in March. I believe March 25th. This is with Stormy Daniels with the bribe money. This is now about to happen, okay? The Stormy, the, the Stormy Daniels trial is going to happen. I believe this is a, si a civil suit as well, if I'm not mistaken. But this is going to happen at the end of March. So Trump isn't spending any jail time in these situations, but he's getting into some financial problems. And we're also still waiting about what's happening with the election um, overturn issue. Um, if I'm not mistaken, there has been an appeal motion but what I'm hearing right now is that the Supreme Court may might have the possibility to reject even looking into it. Like the Supreme Court, I'm hearing, might take a chance and say, we don't think we need to review this. Because the second highest court, which is the appeals um, that looked over this, the appellate court, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, maybe it's the appeals they looked over the case, the second highest court before the Supreme Court. They looked over this case. And basically, the panel unanimously unanimously said that, you know, pretty much Trump trial needs to go. He needs to go to, he needs to go to trial. That they found sufficient evidence or believe that presidential immunity does not protect him. There's no presidential immunity when it comes to criminal issues. And so basically he needs to go to trial. They didn't say he was guilty, but they said that his argument that he should be protected from any type of 
you know, political, any lawsuits or anything, any criminal trials was BS. So now Trump has to answer to the case, the courts. He has to now answer. He has to go to trial as of right now. He's trying to take it to the Supreme Court. It's not likely he's going to appeal it with the court that just ruled down because I don't see them overturning the decision, which they're not. I think Trump knows that. So now I think he wants to go to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has two choices. They can either decide to, you know, look at the case, which he's banking on, because then you can have a six. You know, he's hoping that the majority of Republicans and conservatives will, will you know, will design his favor. But the Supreme Court could also just say, because of how nasty and political this is, they could just say, you know what? We don't see a role in why we shouldn't get involved. But based on everything, whatever the decision might be, we're looking at that trial starting in the summer. So you got the Stormy Daniels trial. The E. Jean Carroll trial wrapped up. He got fined. The Trump organization trial wrapped up. He's got a, he got fined and barred from doing business in New York. Now all that's left, I mean, you got Stormy Daniels and you got the election overturned. You got that. You got the Colorado situation, which Supreme Court seems to be nudging his favor around the Colorado about whether or not he should be on the ballot. As I told you all, I think that he might get that one. He might win that one because it could be argued that Colorado maybe have jumped the gun, right? But the election interference, that trial is in this in this weird mojo jojo, right? Because you got Fannie Willis, um, who got her situation going on, which we're going to dive into in a couple of minutes. But it's a lot. There's a lot of financial considerations to be had. And brace yourselves, buck up your seatbelts, because it's about to be a bumpy ride. Some of the big financial hurdles that I think needs to be taken in big consideration is the role of how is he going to pay all this goddamn money? So I did some research. I looked into some things and also just following the dollars. So the big scheme of this all is that his cash on hand apparently is about 400 something million dollars is what I've seen reported. Trump has over a half a billion dollars in legal fees. Like he, the, the, if you combine how much he has to pay, um, you know, in to the, the state of New York, the E. Jean Carroll money, the legal fees all together, that goes to roughly a half a billion dollars. Now, mathematically speaking, if you do your math, you know that that means that how much money he has on hand and the legal fees. The, the money, the math ain't math thing, which then means that he's going to have to sell assets and things, properties and things to li- to get that money. And he doesn't just need to get money to just pay off this debt. He's going to need to get some money in his own coffers to maintain his lifestyle, to keep paying these legal fees to, uh, for other shit. Like this is this is serious because now he's in net negative. Like he's I mean, if he had a billionaire, if he had a billionaire status, the billionaire status is gone. I don't know what the status... I mean, he used to be a billionaire. I don't know what he is anymore. But this is serious. Like, this man is in some deep financial shit. And so, what I'm hearing is it's going to be harder for him because if he can't do business in New York, which is literally his backyard, like, New York is his home. 
He can't do business for three years. He's financially fucked because now where are you going to go? You're going to have to go where? To Pennsylvania? You're going to have to go to Chicago? Like, where are you going to go to try to sell your assets and do business or try to get businesses? Who's going to want to affiliate with you or trust you enough to be able to do business for you to get the money you need? How are you going to be able to get that money, the money you need to be able to do this? You have to pay people. And all these appeals, you can appeal all day, but you're going to have to pay money up front. So it's serious. This is no joke. This man is playing with his entire future. And he can't file bankruptcy, I suppose. I don't know, to really get himself out. Like, people got to get paid. And yet you want to still be the president? Well, that makes sense because the new thing that's being said is about the RNC. He, staying in the race, will get the RNC to bankroll his legal fees. Now, the RNC, to my knowledge, I don't think can pay the, the fines. But him getting a lawyer, him getting those type of resources, I believe, not the DNC, I'm sorry, the RNC, the Republican National Committee, um, who also has the RNC, which is the Republican National Convention. The RNC, not the DNC, the RNC um, would pay legal fees. So what they'll be paying for is him maintaining a lawyer, him making sure he could be able to defend himself in court. Is he using the money he's raising for his campaign to do this? Possibly. And so th there's a lot of things that can be used in this way to defend him and protect them. But the reality is, Donors are donors wanting to give Trump money for him to fight off these court cases. I mean, when you're buying your mega hot for 40 something plus dollars or some whatever, are you is that the money you want your money going to? Because that's money that's not going to ads, not going to you know campaign materials, not going to him actually hitting rallies. Like it's weird. And so the RNC apparently, you know, I mentioned on my last episode or the episode before that, that the RNC current chair is stepping down. The new speculation is, is that Trump's daughter-in-law is going to now be in that seat. And that if she's in that seat, you know, daughter-in-law going to take care of father-in-law. And so is that was the master plan for, for the other woman to get off because she'd been in there for a minute. And then slide the 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 um the daughter-in-law there in to chair, and then she will then be the one to regulate priority over Trump. Because once she gets in, it's Nepo Baby Central. She's gonna be focused on keeping the family alive and afloat and doing everything they can to keep Trump. Trump argues that the Republican Party, the Republican National Committee, and all of them should be prioritizing him because he's their last hope to get the White House. But let's also be clear. The White House is his last hope to, to, to remain in any sense of relevancy and power because I feel like right now he's using his campaign to shield him as much as possible from all these criminal trials and these investigations. His argument is, is that if he's in the presidency, a lot of stuff is going to go away. It gets harder to put a president on trial, you know, in the midst of it, like it would be harder. So he's trying to push the clock as much as possible. He's trying to buy as much time as possible so that he could be able to basically keep, keep this little griff alive, you know? And 
it's 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 interesting to me because it just seems like I don't know how Republican voters feel. I don't know what the hell is going on with the Republican Party. It's really hard to tell. But what I am going to tell you all is that I believe this upcoming week we're going to see South Carolina and the primaries in South Carolina. With all that's happened to Trump, one thing that people are not paying attention to is that Nikki Haley is edging, is consistently edging up on him. Now, I know everybody's like, look, Nikki Haley ain't doing nothing, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Heard, heard, heard. But, I mean, if she continuously stay in the race, I mean, she has donor money. She outraised fund, she out campaign fundraised Donald Trump. She's getting the money. The votes may not be there, arguably, arguably, but she still has a fighting chance. And I wonder if she's just going to keep pushing herself through and waiting for the convention. Because by the convention, if the if it is a fight at the convention, <coughs> this could be a real interesting moment where you could see voters, delegates might turn. There could be debauchery at the Republican National Convention this summer. You could see a situation where people might say, yeah, in January I was rocking with Trump, but this Stormy Daniels situation, these verdicts, I mean, they might say, you know what, I want to go for Nikki. Maybe Nikki is in the headspace, you know, maybe she'll have like, who want to play with Nikki? I'm just saying, her head, she's like, probably like, who want to play with me? Like, maybe this is an opportunity for me to lean into you know, this opera, this, this man, Schumer Freud is real. Maybe she wants to see this man fail. I mean, clearly she do. So I don't know. I think she's not giving up until she really has to. But she's keep getting money. And she's not sold that Trump's going to make it through the end. So we'll see. But thinking, of, thinking about things that made it through the end, this recent hearing on Fannie Willis, or Fannie Fonnie Willis. Um, it's stupid. You know, there's been a lot of great reporting at the Daily Beast and other places that just said it doesn't make sense. Trying to disqualify her doesn't make sense. Common sense in the law show you that this this whole obsession over trying to remove her, which she is the um Fulton, the Fulton County DA who's prosecuting Trump. They're trying to argue that because she was, you know, had this romantic relationship, you know, um, that there was this conflict of interest. Um, you know, Trump's co-defendant, Michael Roman, other people uh, have been trying to disqualify her. Basically, uh, basically on this theory that her relationship with the special prosecutor she hired, which is his name is Nathan Wade. He's a black man. She, They said that it creates a conflict of interest for her in prosecuting the case. So I watched the hearings, you know, um, and I, 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 you know, I watched the case. I mean, the, not the case. It was not a trial. It was a hearing. Let me get my words right. Um, I, I, I watched the the hearings with her father, with Nathan Way, with her, and you know, it was spicy, but also something we didn't need to watch. I mean, I'm in, I'm I'm often in for the drama, but I kind of watch this like after watching Fannie Wills Willis's testimony, 
I kind of was like, this is kind of stupid. Like, I think after, like, maybe it was a two-hour hearing. So, you know, I was watching it. I want to say after the first hour, I was just over it. I was annoyed. I was bored. I was like, you're trying to make a point that doesn't land. These are the prosecutors that I'm talking about, like, on Trump's team that are trying to. Um, you know, Judge Scott McAfee, you know, did his thing, you know, to make sure he had all his facts before his ruling. But it's obvious in hearing Judge Scott McAfee that he's not going to, like, punish her. Like, it's not happening. Like, he went through the procedure. He let all the evidentiary, you know, hearing all this scoping for the information happen. But I, I think he himself throughout the time of, of interjecting would just kind of like, you know, get to the point with them. You know, they were just doing a lot. And it was just like nothing. Everything was so presumptuous. And, you know, there was just no hard concrete. You know, the big thing was is that, look, she didn't have a relationship with him before she hired him. She had the relationship after the fact that he was appointed, he was a special prosecutor. Like, this all happened after the fact. There was no real relationship or anything prior. None of that. And they kept trying to make this conspiracy that there was all this innuendo. But, like, clearly this is a situation where they were messing around while working together. People, I taught my students this. I had a conversation with my students last week. We were having a conversation about professional etiquette and things. And what I do with my students about that, like, in the past when this lesson was taught to the freshmen... It was around the, the 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 confines of respectability politics. So everything was, you need to dress a certain way, talk a certain way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We didn't do that. We talked about, we had a really great, um, I did a really great lecture on the how college norms and adulthood, the 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 the, the, the contrasts, the comparisons and the contrasts, um, like things that are socially acceptable in college that does not work in the real world. And the students were fascinated. And it was a great conversation. So one thing that I was saying to them, a couple of things I said to them was like, okay, in college, you know, there is this acceptance of getting drunk till you black out. Like people get drunk, you do dumb things, and everyone kind of accepts that like as an excuse. Like, oh, I got drunk, you know, might have did X, Y, and Z. Don't remember, blacked out, whatever. Threw up on someone's floor and that's okay. Right. There was like a, there's a cultural acceptance around extreme excessive drinking and just alcoholism in college. And I told them that in adulthood, in the real world, um, when you graduate. No one gives a fuck. You better know how to keep your hands to yourself. You better, you know, watch your mouth. You better watch your manners. You know, you better you better watch out. You know, you don't get to get drunk and make excuses for doing dumb shit. So that was something I made clear to them. Also. You know, in the real world, there is not an obsession over body count. Like, if you're talking about body count, oh, yeah, we I keep it real with my students. They out here, they grown, they know what's going on in the world. I'm like, all this whole how many bodies you have nonsense that people do, real grown-ups don't have those kind of conversations, right? There's ways to do it in a mature way, but this whole body count stuff, slut-shaming kind of behavior, you know, professional adults in the real world, grown-up, college-educated people... That's not acceptable in high society. And even regardless, right, in any mature adult world, professional setting, degree or not, 
No one's doing that. No one's like, how many bodies do you have? Like, we don't do that kind of stuff. And adults that do that stuff are losers. So I explained that to them. Another um, contrast that I explained to them was that, um, you know, a big one was that you're not going to have a bunch of people um, checking in on you and begging you to turn in something. Deadlines are deadlines. There's barely extensions. And, you know, if you don't get do something, you don't get to run and do the whole, well, can you give me this, please, please, please? Like deadlines are real. And there's no, you know, exceptions to it often. Um, and, and, and you're not expected to, you know, there, you, you know, there, there's, it's not expected to, like, if there's a deadline on something, no one goes, Oh, for me, can you give me that? It's, it's very seldom that happens. And so, you know, you don't expect, don't expect extensions and deadlines on deadlines in, in the real world. Um, another one was social status, right? So if you're an alpha, you're Miss Cheney, you're a Delta, you're this, you're that, all of those type of status things do not carry the same weight in, re in regular life. You walk in the room and you go, I'm a this, this, this of this fraternity. People are going to say, okay, so you can sit down. Like jobs and places like that don't care, right? Of course, there's your own personal social settings and networks that might entertain it, but it does not carry the same type of social capital and weight as it do in college. So in college, I remember in certain networks and social circles I was in, people really gave a fuck about people's, you know, titles in, in, this, in, 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 in that kind of social Greek life setting. It doesn't carry that kind of weight um, in the real world. You know, some networks and groups, you know, have their moments and it's cool and it's fun, but it doesn't it doesn't mean anything outside of what your character is and what you bring to the table professionally. Um, another big one uh, before connecting all these dots. Um, another big one was. Oh. You know, uh, friendships and in, in, in dating life that in college, a lot of people are defined by their social life and, and things of that nature. In adulthood, you know, gossip outwardly is not as acceptable as it could be in college. Like, oh, people gossip and spill the tea and all that. I mean, I, I definitely have my fair share of cups of tea with friends, but we do so more in a very, very private, intimate way. In college, a lot of times people feel like it's open conversation to be had everywhere in the workplace and spaces. That's not how it really works in the real world. Yeah, there's whispers, there's chummers, there's mummers, but a lot of that is frowned upon um, in adult life. And so I explained that to them. Oh, and the last big thing I told them was is that in most settings, no one's asking what your GPA is. If you have the degree and you graduate, Unless you're applying for grad school or law school or any of those schools in, in work job settings, no one's walking around asking what your, your, your GPA is. Most people just want to know what your degree or what you study and if you graduated. And if you do that, people don't ask anything. I don't ever recall in my entire now about to be 10 years since undergrad where I've ever had to basically tell anyone my GPA for a job. Never. And as somebody who has hired people for jobs and fellowships and things of that nature, I've never asked people what their GPA is. If you tell me you went to this school and you graduated and you know you studied this, I, I look at your work experience. I, I want to know what kind of work you've done, what kind of service you've done. But I'm not sitting up all night like, 
ooh, what what course did you fail, you know, in your second semester? Like, no, no one cares, you know. Um, again, if you're applying for grad school, stuff like that matters. But to my students who are like, look, I'm trying to get out here and get a job and get in the workforce, workforce ain't sweating like that. So, you know, you do want to still do good, but focus on that. So that was the, the takeaways I gave my students. Um, how does that connect to what I was saying before? I don't know. Um, but I just felt like it on my chest to say it. So I guess in, in essence, um, oh, that's what I was going to say. And this was something that did come up with my students. Fraternizing that while in school, it's, you know, a lot of you all might be dating one another um, in clubs or organizations. Companies do not necessarily um, promote or, ex- or, or or be fans of that. That was one of the things we talked about. That was we spent. I think half of the class was on that conversation, which is why I'm like, why did I just not just forget that? But like that was like the bulk of the conversation. And then of course the other things were brought in, and everybody accepted those things. But that was a big debate with my students. They were like, "What do you mean? If I'm at work all day, you know, I can't, I can't, you know, fall. What if I fall in love? I'm like, listen, listen, listen. Shit happens. But let me tell you, when it goes south." It can create problems. And I used the Fonnie Willis situation as an example of that. That, okay, Fonnie and his man, Nathan Wade, had a little relationship. I mean, it was what it was. But now, because of the fact they had a relationship romantically, it's now creating a problem with a case that is one of the most important cases in American history. Right. That that if if they didn't date or mess around for better or for worse, we wouldn't be having this dumbass conversation or debate. We wouldn't be having this case being stalled right now. And so Trump is doing everything in his power to stall any cases on him. And so if we would have just kept going, none of this would have came. We would have got on with it. But now this has to be held up because they're trying to find any his his team is trying to find anything they can to try to get this man off this case and to be into and they want everything dropped. It ain't happening, I don't think, but it's just like, damn, don't shit where you eat. Avoid it as much as you can. And so my rebuttal to my students, you know, because we still have class on President's Day. Um, I'm gonna tell them, like, listen, you see what's been going on this week? You see what's happening? This is why you don't do that. Because it's not so much about whether or not y'all break up and remain friends, remain cool or whatever. It's just that it can be used and weaponized in ways to take away from the work. So now we find out things about Fanny that we didn't need to know. That she doesn't really drink wine. She drinks Grey Goose. That she keeps cash on her. And that, you know, she says, listen, um, I forget how she said it, but she basically paraphrased like a man is not a goal. A man is a companion. That she don't need nobody to pay her bills and her rent. She needs a, you know, she wants a man for enjoyment and fulfillment, pretty much, she said. We we didn't know all that. I mean, I like what she said. I agree. But it's just like this didn't have to happen. This didn't have to happen. So I'm using this example to tell my students to like not fraternize. But I think this is going to be a wrap. We're over it. I hope this just moves on and we can keep it moving. That's my take. So, on to Philly. Two big things happened in Philly this week. 
that I want to talk about. So Trump came to SneakerCon in Philly. Yes, SneakerCon, which was celebrating an anniversary of sorts, had their big to-do in Philadelphia. All the folks that love sneakers love it. For whatever reason, Trump came to announce that he has a new shoe that he's launching. He's selling it for $399, um, which is wild. Um, this I, I don't understand what this is about, um, but once again, it's given desperate. <clears throat> he made a brief appearance. Um, he was trying to tell the crowd to vote. Um, it's the greatest sneaker show on earth. And it came to Philly for the second time um, this year, apparently. Um, so apparently he came in to promote a shoe. Um, there are people that were hype about him. There are people that were not hype about him. Um, the crowd booed him. There were some people that say he's a good Christian man. Um, there's lots of videos talking about some of the drama. Um these are some gold. He has some gold high tops is what the shoes are is. And there's apparently two versions of the shoe. It's got, you know, the American flag on them. Um, you know, there was some mixed reviews in the room. Um, people, you know, there was there was a lot of mixed reviews and thoughts about his signature shoe. Um you know, Joe Biden's campaign spokesperson spoke about it and said that, you know, Donald Trump showing up to hawk bootleg off whites is the closest he'll get to any Air Force Ones ever again for the rest of his life. Ouch. Um, you know, it just. Mm, mm. But, you know, Trump is headed to Michigan where he's going to address his supporters. There is a Republican primary 10 days, uh, less than 10 days at this point. And he was there to promote um, this sneaker line that he's doing is I, I feel like another big grift. Um, I'm just trying to figure out what's going on here. Um, they're called Trump sneakers. Apparently they're available for pre-order online. But like, what is he doing? What is he doing? A, a day after the judge's orders, he's now launching these Trump sneakers. These are like some gold high tops. They're, they're never surrender high tops is how he described them. But the room was mixed on him. There were boos and cheers. And this is not the typical Trump crowd. So you're seeing how divided the public is about him. And it's very telling. And so I, t I tell people, I'm like, y'all think this Trump thing is over. I, I, I listen, I, you know, you know, it, it's just it's, it's just very telling. But also very telling. Moving on. Um, SEPTA. I don't know if everybody's been following the latest SEPTA drama. So SEPTA has been having this revolution they've been wanting to propose. To really, you know, redesign, remap, re-coordinate the way that SEPTA, operate, SEPTA operates. Especially according to its buses in Philadelphia. This plan has been in works for a couple years. There's been lots of conversations and talks. But SEPTA's ready to move forward on it. The only problem is, is that there has been some pushback from members of city council that have argued that, you know, hey, they're looking at this route, they're looking at these decisions, and they feel like that the new SEPTA revolution proposal, as it currently stands, 
is not making it as accessible to black and brown communities in Philadelphia and that there needs to be some more conversation, some more input from the community on how they want this revolution to look. Um, the person taking up the charge is, Kath, is, is Majority Leader and Council Member at Large, Catherine Gilmore Richardson, who has been really steadfast on the SEPTA thing. She's you know now 40. She is someone who frequently rides SEPTA despite being elected official. And she definitely knows her way around town on SEPTA. So it, this is not a new ballpark for her. She understands public transportation very well. And in her role in city council, she has been an advocate for it. She's thinking about the, you know, the grandmas, the uncles and the everyday workers that live in these often neglected neighborhoods in Philadelphia about how far they will have to access a public bus or a public train. Now, I'm going to be real with you. I'm going to tell you all something. I'm going to let you all in on something. I have not rode SEPTA in four years. Now, my husband is different. He has gotten on the bus. He doesn't really ride the L, but there is a bus stop near us right across from our building, and he rides it. I have just not gotten on SEPTA. Call me a diva. Call me wherever you want to call me. But I just have not. The pandemic, I think, made me realize how unsanitary public transportation is. Now, I know there's been some improvements made. I know that there has been changes made. Um, it's not even just so much about cleansiness because I know there could be improvements made there. But safety has been a concern. There's been a lot of, you know, violent acts. And to be clear, the way that I travel on SEPTA, if I was ever get back on, I always wrote the Market Frankfurt line. I only need the Market Frankfurt line to go to the place I need to go to. Um, you know, I live in University of West Philly. So Market Frankfurt line, the L, was always where I would go. That's it. I don't. I never did the Broad Street line. I barely did that. I never did anything else. Um, but it has been, and I never really did. I never really did the bus even before the pandemic. I never was a bus person because I had a very bad bus experience on SEPTA. Ooh, many years ago, it was just a. It was a bus ride from hell because one, it was a situation where I was on the bus. And there were a lot of slow pace. There was a lot of nasty people in the bus just being mean. But there was an incident where a person, I believe, had a heat stroke on the bus. And that just took, there was no preparation. Like, no one had water for the individual. It was scary. And there had to be paramedics. And I was trying to go to a screening and I never got to make it on time. And I just was like, you know what, never again. Um, I know life happens and I get it, but I just was like, nah. So I never rode the bus again after that. That was the experience. But then I also had a a, a life-changing experience on the SEPTA bus. Many, many years ago, I was trying to get somewhere to King Oppression. This was before, uh, you know, Uber was really like Uber, you know? Um, this is like in early 2024. I was trying to get a lease. Uh, not 2014. It was like I was trying to get a lease. And Uber wasn't as prominent. There was, I think it was like Black Card then. And so I, I had to take the bus and it was so efficient in getting me to KLP and finding my route back home. But it was an obstacle course, just that whole journey. I don't, I don't know how I did it. Like mentally, when I think about that whole day, that's another surfing I think. But like I think about that whole day and the heat, getting to and fro to get myself to get this lease in this random ass place, the, the semi-con, it was just a lot. But anywho. You know, you live, you learn. You know, you look back at your life and say, how did I do that? And it just happens. But anyway, 
Um, just have not rolled proper transportation, but my husband do. Um, you know, clearly a uh, council member at large, uh, Gilmore Richardson do. And it's a thing. So in her pursuit to try to make this a more equitable experience, there were advocates a part of the advisory that I believe was a part of this SEPTA revolution. So this is not the leading staff, but they was reportedly being very hostile um, to, you know, Kathy Gilmore Richardson's office. I mean, there were people calling her an inconsiderate girl, which was very disrespectful, um, nasty callers, nasty messages, just all types of disrespect. And these were people that arguably would label themselves as progressives. And I just felt to myself, you know, I had to speak on this. I tweeted on it a couple of days back. Um, but basically it was like, you know, it's interesting to me that, you know, progressives who oftentimes talk about equity and intersectionality, but white progressives are in the league of their own. Because I'm not going to keep saying progressives. I need to clarify. And people are. They're saying white progressives because they're a certain unique niche of problematic ass people in Philadelphia, you know, that don't see anything wrong with how they carry on. They talk over black and brown people. They think they know what's best for them. They don't read shit. They think they know everything by catching a documentary. They're, they're smart to the point that they're dumb and they really lack cultural competency consideration and collective thinking on the larger picture. And they don't have any regard for, for, for people in the optics and the, and the different unique experiences people do. I remember a lot of people were like, you know, making comparisons between candidates. And I used to hate that. They used to say, well, why is Kathy more, not more like, you know, Helen Gim? Well, first of all, Helen Gim is not a black woman. Helen Gim is someone who comes from money, right? She's, she has a wealthy family and a wealthy family life. So she has a cushy lifestyle where if she was to lose office, she would still be rich, as we can currently see now. Um, but if you look at a lot of these other elected officials, like, you know, Catherine Gilmer Richardson, she's married, but they're upper middle class at the at the highest level. If she doesn't work, the family's going to fill it. And she can't afford to make the certain types of, you know, conf confrontational, you know, political risks that... Gim previously did because she was of a different stature and status within council. And so, you know, you got to pick your battles. You got to know, you know, when to hold them and when to fold them. And that was something that I feel like white progressives just never got. So just hearing the reports of a lot of the disrespect and harassment that her office had faced, um, it's just a moment where you all seen some of it. If you haven't been on Twitter, if you've not been following social media and what's been going on, but a lot of that kind of stuff happens and people don't check it. People just let shit slide. Um, and we see a lot of that happening um, where people um, do whatever they want and, um, you know, let stuff be, um, which in my opinion, got to call this shit out more, period. So, I'm happy people have spoken up. I'm happy that there is some conversations being ha had about the nature of how certain progressives have carried on and have acted during these very interesting political times. I definitely, you know, am curious to see how people continue to move, um, especially during everything that's happening right now uh, politically. So we'll see. We'll see.
So there's been this conversation about, you know, the whole Beyonce crossing over to country music. Um, you know, it's the saga continues. It looks like she's going to have a really big billboard hit um, on her hands with Texas Hold'em and even 16 Carriages. Um, both songs, which, of course, I listened to the night of the Super Bowl, were really good. You know, it showed her range, her versatility. And there's been many um, opinions about the songs and how she performs them. But I think people have embraced it, um, at least her fans, very well. And uh, and people who are not necessarily traditional Beyonce fans. Um, I think that one thing I have appreciated about the songs, listening to them more, and also listening to other um, country music artists, notably uh, other black country music artists, is that I do appreciate that Beyonce is singing the songs in her same you know traditional cadence, but giving them a richer production and it's familiar, but it's also fun and different without feeling performative. And what I mean by that is that there are country artists um, and, it's, and those who cross over the country, um, pop artists that do, you know, that will adopt the new accent and put on a whole new, you know, persona and it kind of cheapens it, right? What, what we think it is. Even... R&B, where you'll see certain, you know, artists, you know, white artists, you know, try to put on a whole different swagger and persona or what we see with hip hop where, you know, people put a different type of energy into rapping and not even just energy, just like actual voice changes and things to sound a certain way. And I appreciate that Beyonce did not do that. Like, it just sounds so natural for her. Like when she sings 16 Carriages, I believe her. You know, the beat, the beat is there, but the voice, the feelings, the emotions is so genuine. And her voice is able to cross over into different genres really well. She has sung gospel music. She's done opera. She's done it all in her various uh, performances throughout her, you know, illustrious over 25-year career. She has really, um, you know, have, have perfected being a chameleon in various genres and with country, I think if she stays at this, you know, this type of uh, direction, she's going to be massive. I really do think this is something that makes sense. And there's been articles written about how the country and Beyonce isn't so far-fetched. And as somebody who grew up in Houston, Texas, and has listened to Beyonce since the beginning of my time, you know, Beyonce and country and the elements of country and Western isn't has never felt foreign to me. Um, some of you all just don't know your artists, and that's okay. Does this say you don't know? If you don't know something, just don't know something. But when I hear people say things like, oh, this is going to be hard for me to be used to or whatever, I'm like, okay, let's start with daddy issues eliminate. I mean, you could go that back if you want to, or you could even go, you know, farther back with a lot of the fashion that Destiny's Child was rocking. I mean, she was on the cover of Texas Monthly, you know, many, many years ago. She used to perform at the Houston Livestock Show on Rodeo. Cowboy Hats was always a part of her aesthetic throughout her career, even when the song may or may not have been specifically country or anything of that nature. Um, the gothic Western aesthetic of some of her looks that she's done throughout her album covers. There, there's a lot there. A lot of that heritage and connection has always been throughout. 
And even when she wasn't doing country, she often did adopt Southern themes and vow and, 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 and embrace. She's always embraced that heritage of herself, her, you know, Creole heritage from her mother, her Southern background from her father, her Houston, Texas roots have always been embedded. So for her to lean into country a lot more um, aggressively isn't so far-fetched of a concept for me. Like, it's not that, oh my God, shocker. But of course, because she's Black and because she's a Black woman doing this type of music, everyone's having different thoughts. You know, there's conversations about radio stations, adjusting and adapting. There are some really ridiculous um, white country fans. They're not even musicians that are like making ridiculous um, insults about her, um, you know, getting into country. I mean, we knew the racism was going to come. Even when Beyonce was doing pop music, there was racism. There's always been racism connected to the things that she do. And honestly, at a certain point, you just have to just expect it and not give a fuck. Like, I'm just tired of, I don't know. I get tired of media sometimes that, like, they 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 act so shocked every time these things happen. And it's not actually good for conversation discourse. Like, I'm tired of us reacting to shit. Let's analyze the shit. Let's unpack the shit. Let's get into the, the meat of the conversation rather than all these basic surface level this happened. This happened as if people didn't know. And you know what it is? I feel like they're writing for, writing for white people. I don't know. But I'm sick of people censoring white people in every goddamn aspect of society. And then wondering why you can't get readers and audiences that are black and brown. Because the shit's remedial for us. Like, we're tired of explainers that, for us, we already get. And look, you can write explainer pieces but don't censor them in a way to act like the rest of the world has to catch up for a lot of people in this world who don't. The majority of this world is very diverse. And the experiences of racism and, and um, you know, ethnic discrimination and, you know, racist white supremacy is something that a lot of people can identify with around the world on a global scale. In America, it feels like people can't, right, because of this so-called population differentiation but that's even changing. And we're going to see for the first time in American history, as much as as long as I know it, that non-white people will be the majority of this country in the next couple of years, which is why I think there's been this aggression by white conservatives, largely, to try everything in their power to isolate, to control the bodies of women who are having, you know, more mixed children than ever. Uh, to try to create a you know border, a, a tougher border because of the fear of you know immigrants, undocumented immigrants expanding their bloodline and generation in American soil. There is a lot of xenophobia and eugenics behind this, and and even the permeation of black people in country music. Which let's be clear, we originated country music. We were the architects of, of gospel and pop and rock and all these things. But there is a reclamation that is happening in America um, where you're starting to see the bloodline of indigenous people, right, um, that, are, that are coming through this country to reclaim America. We're starting to see a reclamation of the culture, largely from Black artists that are reminding people that they were the first to do this. And so... There are a lot of white people who are embracing this difference in various ways. Um, then there are very much those who want to gatekeep 
what they've stolen. And that's the fight. That is the fight that we're seeing. That is the the culture war as we um, describe it. There, There is a society of people who, when they say make America great again, they're really talking about, you know, gatekeeping and fighting to keep America the way they want it to be, even though it was not the way it was originated to be. Hmm. Just thinking out loud. Um, but nonetheless, I'm excited to see how these Beyonce songs fare on the Billboard Hot 100. I've heard that Texas Texas Hold It, um, Hold Em, is going to potentially, you know, aim high on the Billboard Hot 100. Number one might be close, but definitely in the top five, top three, maybe top two, who knows? But for a debut like that, you know, on the first week is only up from here. As more people begin to embrace it, put it on TikTok, request it on radio, I think Beyonce is about to get her next big number one hit. So, stay woke. <laughs> um, speaking of another member of the, you know, Beyonce family, Destiny Child family, I want to address this Kelly Rowland drama that has happened or has been alleged and been talked about in the press. And there's been different sides about it, but I've done some research. Y'all know I know some, you know, some some media people and some journalists out there who work at these these major broadcast stations that's going to give me the tea. So, okay. So Kelly has been on a media tour promoting Mia Koopa uh, this upcoming Tyler Perry film that's going to be on Netflix next week. I will watch it. I will review it. It's a Tyler Perry film. You know, lower your expectations, people. I know y'all like Kelly Rowland. I know y'all love Travante Rhodes, who was in, um, who was who was the older Chiron in Moonlight. But I'm going to review the film. I'm going to watch it when I get a chance, and I will let you know what I think. But nonetheless, Miss Rowland is out here promoting this film. She wants to get all the streams. She wants you all to, you know, be talking about it. Happy Black History Month. So on Friday, it was uh, the Today Show, which is connected to NBC. Um, the plan was, was that Kelly was going to do an interview in the first hour. Because this show, if y'all ever watch this day, well, first of all, most of us don't. But the Today Show is a long ass show. It's like an all day morning show. And it was many hours. And so the first hour was about, was there was going to interview Miss Rowland. She was going to be interviewed, you know, about the show, yada, yada, yada. And then after that, the fourth and final hour, she was going to then become a co-host with Huda, who's the other co-host. And they were going to interview celebrities and different people and yada, yada, yada. That was the plan. Um, A modest plan, um, but nonetheless, a plan. So when you host a show, you know, that changes the difference between being a special guest versus being, you know, basically somebody who is steering a show. So you're considered top priority. Um, when you MC an event, you know, as the MC, as the host, you know, there is a level of, um, you know, privileges that you get because you're, care you're responsible with a, a larger goal. So if you're a, a performer that night, okay, you got one performance, you know, you 15 minutes, you get off the stage. The host, though, is hosting for a you know period of time. They deserve 
They're going to be on camera longer. They're going to be on the things. They need to have a, you know, accommodations that suit the role that they're doing. Um, so in these situations, if you're a host, you're going to get a better green room than sometimes the performers because you need to be in there consistently, making sure your water right, your stuff right, you look good, you whatever, right? That's just a given. So there is a master green room in the Today's Show studios. The other rooms are smaller. They're, they're really temporary. They're a you go in, you go out kind of thing. Because at the end of the day, you know, you, you ain't, you ain't going to be there that long. You go in there, you patch your nose, you go. But the host, the master green dressing room is often given a special co-host that's going to be on the show. Or, you know, look, if the president of the United States is coming, you know, something like that. But they really reserve it for that. Now, normally the main host, the two main hosts, um, I think it's uh, Huda and Guthrie, uh, Samantha Guthrie, they have their own green rooms because they're permanent hosts. But there's always a special green room that is reserved for a special guest, a co-host, or something of that nature. So Kelly was expected to be a guest for the first hour, which she did. She did a cute little interview. It was nice. One thing I will say, though, is I'm a little tired of people asking her about Beyonce. Um, I get it. They're best friends. But y'all got to respect Kelly because when Beyonce is being interviewed, no one's asking Beyonce about the rest of the women. Sometimes they'll ask an occasional, what about DC3 or a, a Des or Destiny Child reunion tour? They'll ask that. But a lot of times, you know, people at, are so engrossed in Beyonce that they ask Beyonce about Beyonce. I think it's not cool that every time Kelly does a, a, has a media run or a show, she's always expected to answer questions about Beyonce, even when it's a her moment. Like Kelly is an is an artist in her own fucking right. She has her own hits. She was a part of a great group. She's produced great music. She's a great you know. She's a she acts. She has her own career, y'all. So to consistently ask her about Beyonce at this point in the game is getting kind of old and lazy. And if you don't know enough about Kelly to ask her about her life, then stop interviewing her. Because if I interview Kelly Rowland, man, I wouldn't even know where to start. I have so many questions, you know, good ones and meaningful ones. Like there's so much to interview her about in her own career and in her own experiences. You know, I would ask about Donna Summer. Like, what's up with this, this biopic, girl? Are you going to do it or not? Like, there's so many great things to ask Kelly. And I just get so annoyed that it's always missed opportunities with mainstream media. Now, other black artists, uh, I mean, sorry, black journalists and black media um, will ask Kelly some really great questions about her life and her experiences. And I find those interviews to be the most enriching. But it seemed like mainstream media just look at her as still the dark-skinned girl on Destiny's Child who is doing some other stuff, but we don't know enough to care to actually ask her questions. It's kind of fucking annoying. So anyway, she did her first interview in the first hour. The fourth and final hour, she was supposed to co-host with Huda. They didn't give her the master green room, um, as she deserved, because they were too busy making accommodations for J-Lo. J-Lo, as you all know, has released her new album, movie, yada, 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 Right. And I'm going to talk more about that film in a minute. But I'm looking at this and I'm like, why is, I mean, I'm hearing about this, let me be clear. And in this dynamic, they put J-Lo in that master room, even though J-Lo was going to do a quick little one-stop interview in the fourth hour and dip. So 
Look, I understand JLo's a big star, right? But what this feels like was a disrespectful scheduling problem. You decided to put Kelly as a special host. Kelly should have got the big green room. I get JLo's a big star, but if JLo was going to be in the fourth hour, you all should have put JLo at a different time zone and would have made accommodations. Now, if JLo's schedule couldn't permit, then y'all should have did something differently. But what they did was they put Kelly in the small green room. And Kelly was like, so I'm about to host this show. Hold this on my back. I stayed here for like four hours because she did the first interview. And you're going to make me go in the small green room and not let me get the room I deserve? Because J-Lo was in this motherfucker and she's going to do a little quick little interview so I don't get the, get my proper accommodations? No. So allegedly she left. And made them have to figure it the fuck out. And you know what? I'm not mad at her. Because too often, we, we, we talk in circle society. Y'all, some of you are like, oh, you know, she has to be humble. Why? Is it humbling to be disrespected? Is it even a humbling moment? The reality is, is that they did her wrong. And to be honest, Kelly does not need to be at this point in her career, if when you've done as much and you've accomplished as much as Kelly Rowland has done in her career, you don't get to be disrespected like that for doing real work. And if it starts with that, it starts with everything else. And she knows her value because at the end of the day, if it was Beyonce, if it was anybody else that has been in the game for over 25 years, if it was anybody, if it was Ryan Seacrest who was asked to co-host, you wouldn't think it was okay. So why is it okay for Kelly? It's not okay for Kelly. And the problem is, is that I think Kelly and many artists like her have probably done that over the years. And it never pays off, the disrespect. It never do. And at a certain point in your career, you got to say to yourself, wait a minute. J-Lo did a little 65-minute movie, an album that no one's really going to buy, let's be real. And quite frankly, she's coming off a little quick segment. Why do she get all of those accommodations? But I'm the goddamn host that didn't bust my ass to be here for four hours in my schedule. She could have been anywhere that Monday, but she prioritizes today's show. And so for her not to be given those accommodations, I think that was the right call. It was very disrespectful. At the end of the day, it is what it is. But it was very disrespectful. And to be honest, logistically, they should have never scheduled it that way. They should have never expected Kelly was going to do that. They, they, they thought the black woman was going to do whatever she was told. And they were going to accommodate J-Lo. No. So these are the issues. So she said, no, nah, I'm not doing it. So everybody's like, <coughs> everyone's like, how did Kelly, how did Rita Ora come to the mix? So contrary to reports, Rita Ora did not fall from the sky. Rita Ora did not fall from the sky. Rita Ora was already on the show that fourth hour, but they just made Rita... They was able to get Rita to, to, to just join and she adjusted and adapted, you know, because, you know, in my mind, and I know this might be a little messy, but Rita Ora, I, I still don't understand what Rita Ora do anymore. There was a period of time where she was trying to be a music artist. Remember, they were trying to rock nation or whatever. We're trying to have a, a Rihanna duplicate. It never worked, clearly, because we didn't want to party and bullshit. And if you don't know what I'm referencing, so that's exactly the point. No one under, knows what Rita Ora do. Now, I know she's married to that famous Oscar-winning director, Titi uh, Watiti, um, who directed Jojo Rabbit and a couple other great films. 
and he won Oscar. She's married to him, and he's a he's a nice looking man. People thought she was mixed and she was black. She's actually, I believe, British, Australian, or her man is Australian. She might be British, but she's not black. She's white. But they tried to frame her like this light-skinned woman, but she was none of that. Um, and recently she's been leaning into this very British you know, accent in her persona. But people read her as mixed initially because of her involvement with Rock Nation trying to be this, this artist that just never happened. It just... No one wants to read it or music. And so I don't know what she's doing now. I, I really don't, honestly. I know that you can't say a person's an industry plant. But if there was a person that I would say fit the industry plant definition, I would definitely say Rita Ora. <laughs> but to my joke, I always felt like in my mind, Rita Ora is somewhere with a resume around some major studio, some major, you know, you know, um, you know, some major studio, some major, you know, media conglomerate building just on standby. <laughs> and so I kind of was like, Rita rose to the occasion, shout out to her for doing that. But child, she was willing to do it. And that's cute for her because Rita needs that kind of attention to stay in the conversation. Kelly Rowland does not clearly. So I, I, you know, it was what it was, but nonetheless, I, I found it interesting. So this ask Ernest is interesting. You all had two questions. So I'm going to answer two questions. Um, the first one is you all want to understand more about what happened with Bacon Bacon and Fitzwater Cafe. How did I get involved? What was the drama on social media this week? Um, at first I wasn't even going to write, talk about it, actually. I was just going to just, you know, what's going to be, what's going to be. But you all want to know about that. And then I'm going to talk about something else that you all was getting into in my IG stories over the weekend. Um, so first of all, let me break down what happened. How do I explain this? Okay, let me give background. So Bacon Bacon, which you know I've talked about on my show numerous times, is this black-owned restaurant that is in South Philly. They serve a lot of dishes that are uh, bacon-focused. They have a millionaire's bacon dish that they do with a lot of great bacon. And they also have this famous dish called the hanging bacon, where there's five strips of bacon um, hung on this, like, stick uh, that's like a little rising stick. And there's, like, pieces of cornbread. And it's their, one of their most signature dishes. It's their highest-selling dish, and it's called the hanging bacon. Very popular dish. Okay. They opened in December. Keep that in mind. Last week, I was, um, you know, uh, looking at lists, looking through restaurants. I always do a lot of research on restaurants and cafes. Some things I want to consider to put on a list. Sometimes I just want to reject, whatever. But I always do my research. I go on Instagram pages. I look up different places in Philadelphia that I haven't tried before, uh, haven't written about, want to look into, see what they got, whatever. So I landed on the Fitzwater Cafe page. And on their, and this is their Facebook page. They had a special, um, and they, and they and at the time, I don't know if it was even a, they called it special, but it was called the Millionaire Bacon and Cornbread. And it was an identical carbon copy of the bacon bacon dish. They had five strips of bacon, five pieces of cornbread on the same type of wooden stand and look as bacon bacon did. 
Y'all, I was over it. I said, not theft during Black History Month. I know these white people, which, by the way, Fitzwater Cafe is not that far. I think it's in South Philly as well, because Bacon Bacon is in South Philly. They're not that far from each other in distance and locale. So the likelihood of this restaurant um, taking this is very, very probable. Um, it, it's no way. There is no other restaurant in Philly open right now that is doing with bacon what bacon bacon is doing. I mean, just the concept, the style, the aesthetic. Now, it would have been one thing if, let's be clear, there are bacon, there are people who've done hanging bacon. Somebody talked about how, oh, you know, um, what's that place called? Uh, Bankroll did two bacon strips or whatever and called it something billionaire's bacon or something like that. Um, there are bacon hanging dishes. But the difference here is, is the cultural embrace of like the fact that the owner, right, Justin and Melvin, they're co-owners, they're both black. There was a purpose of the fact that cornbread was incorporated and that they did the number of strips they did because it was shade. Because a lot of these restaurants who have done hanging bacon type of dishes, quote unquote, only would give you like two measly slices. They did five because they, they, they was trying to make a point of being generous, right? Of like, wait a minute. Why, you know, there's a mean there's a mean, there's a method to their madness. Cornbread, I mean, that was a that was the black aesthetic. All of this was a cultural remix on this dish. And so if the another group would have did their own hanging bacon situation, but let's say they would have said, we're gonna use, you know, pimento, whatever, that's a whole different vibe and concept. But I was trying to figure out why would this, I guess, white was well, a white-owned restaurant would try to incorporate this type of dish. It just didn't seem like it made sense. So I called it out. I said, this is cap. This is copying. This is stuff. Like, not during Black History Month, you're not. So I shared on my social. And quickly after that, the owner DM'd me. It was a white woman. And she does this thing about, oh, I could see tons of screenshots of other people that did hang and bake it. I said, let me tell you something. What we're not going to do is this. She's going to start by talking about some, you know, it's a shame or whatever that you had to, you know, use race, race and, 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 and division or some shit. I'm like, girl, listen, you know, Ernest in 2016 might have felt alarmed by that accusation and narrative. But Ernest in 2024, child, fuck you. OK, fuck you. I don't I don't care about you. I don't care. I don't care. You're, you're not about to you know, use all of the things to try to victim blame and guilt trip me because I'm speaking out, okay? I'm just not doing that, okay? Like, we're not doing that. You stole a, you stole a concept, right? You took something, you, you literally copied somebody else's, like, entire presentation. Like, from the number of strips to the, I mean, it was just corny. And you live not that far. You cannot tell me you wasn't inspired. You can't. How do you justify it? If you want to do bacon, you could. Why cornbread? Hmm? You know why you use cornbread? Nope. Why the five? Why the same rat? Like everything about it was like, just admit that you, you copied this and you thought it was cute. You thought it was cute. And the gag is, is that if all of this is true, that there was this concept been around, your restaurant's been around for a long time. Why did you do it in February when this restaurant was opened in, I don't know, uh, December? You could have got a head start. If you wanted to do it. No, what happened was 
you saw that a black owner took something, took a risk that you wasn't willing to take and create a product that was selling that I know you've seen. Because as the food editor of Eater Philly, as the editor, I did a story about them in December. I literally used that image of the bacon, hanging bacon as one of the leading photos and promotion of that story. That dish is very recognizable. It's a very recognizable dish in the current food, Philly food zeitgeist. Like it's a very iconic dish already. Like people know what that dish is. People know, like people will look at it and say, I've, I've heard of that. I've seen it before. They might not know where per se, but people have seen it. It's a very signature look. So rather than simply acknowledging what she did, she decides to go on her IG story through the Fitzwater Cafe and she posts all these pictures, random pictures of the dove of bacon hanging in different dishes. None of them had cornbread. None of them were identical to the one that she copied, but she doesn't say anything. She just shows these images. Passive aggressive. And then it gets real fucked up. She Google, she screenshots a Google search of cornbread and she highlights it to that where it shows that cornbread comes from Native American cuisine. Y'all open back to schools, open the schools back up. Please open the schools back up. I don't know what happened with the Philadelphia public school system. Um, but we need we, we need to really get these schools in top notch. Because we cannot have another generation of ignorance and woeful ignorance, mind you. Um, you know, I used to always tell people to Google. I might have to change it. Because Googling without context... It's like swimming without goggles. <laughs> like if you don't have, what this woman was trying to imply is that, oh, you know, I don't know that black people don't have a, a, a cultural historical connection to cornbread, that that's not original because she assumed that these people were black and that was it. Oh, I'm sorry. Newsflash. Justin is actually part Native American indigenous and also black. I I mean, he didn't have to share that to be believed, right? To, to even get more connection. He could just stay black for the sake of whatever. Because I'm just, you know, I'm black. I mean... If I got some indigenous people in me somewhere, I mean, possibly, I don't know, but I'm just black, y'all. But Justin does have, um, you know, Native American. He can trace his family roots, his, his grandmother, and, and all of these things. But it's a shame that assumptions was being made, and I think that's the problem. At the end of the day, just doing these things that this woman was doing was microaggressive. It was a microaggression. It was it was it was it was a racial microaggression. It was an ethnic microaggression, and 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 everything that she did 
to me, only further proved the legitimate harm and this, this, the disrespect. See, this is the stuff, white people, that creates the animosity that you all keep acting like y'all don't want. The, the failure to acknowledge harm and wrongdoing, the failure to admit you're wrong. And when you and when you and you look at black people and, and black and brown folks and be like, you know, you know, you know, why am I why am I being treated sus because of something, some bigot? Baby, the bigots are amongst us. They're in Philadelphia, baby. They are in this society. They are in classrooms and in in, in in newsrooms and in kitchens and restaurants. They are, are they are not far away. And we're at a point where you can't tell the difference at this point. You can't tell the difference between Oh, this white person is going to be nice because white supremacy is so ingrained that there are more people like her than there are more people like the ones y'all think y'all are. And you got to check yourself. You, you got to check yourself and you got to stop acting and being so personal defensive. You got to recognize that a lot of the stuff that people are feeling in this society is rooted in a lot of the historic and still ongoing harm that is still happening. And so when you have a black person that have lived through this your entire life, excuse me for not just automatically trusting a white person. Especially when it comes to this type of behavior. <laughs> because at the end of the day, she could do something like this and still have a business, which she do. And so the update is, is that Philly Mag did a story about it, you know, and of course I am the political writer at large for Philadelphia Magazine. But uh, Kate Lani, who's the food editor there at uh, Philly Mag, um, you know, did a story about everything and properly acknowledged my my role in all this, uh, bringing this to light. Um, she interviewed, you know, Justin. She interviewed the, the restaurant owners. And the, in the interview, the lady mentions that she didn't steal anything, that she didn't even know the other dish existed. Bullshit. But she said that, you know... If she was on the other side, she would be flattered that it was an inspiration. What? Anyway, she also goes to talk about how, you know, she'd been new about this dish for years and she was always going to do it. But they said it was a special that's no longer on the menu. Hmm. 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 And that, you know, they were moving on. So... Although I am blocked from the page, because you know I get banned and blocked often, as Jamarcus would say, I am elated that mission was accomplished. I mean, I was upset that the dish was on the menu. And I'm happy that it's no longer on the menu. And I'm happy that this sends a message loud and clear to a lot of other restaurants out here that think that they can do this and not get called out on it. So, I feel vindicated. Because if you felt like what you was doing was right, you would have just kept it. You would have stood on business. But you knew the shit was fucked up. And everybody knew. And shout to the influencers, the black influencers, that spoke up and said something. Because this 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 happens too much and we and we don't say anything. It don't just happen to black cuisine. It happens to Latin cuisine in Philly. There's people out here doing dishes, copying dishes. A lot of a lot of Asian dishes have been hijacked. And we're tired of it. We're tired of the theft. Stop stealing from black and brown 
communities. Stop stealing from, you know, cuisine of color. Get your own shit. Work with chefs. Give people credit. Do collaborations. You know, I love collaborations. Do collaborations with chefs. Bring them to your restaurant. Let them do something for, you know, a, a, a you know, month or something. Do residency programs. There's other ways to address it. You know, I, that's why I really respect Chad Rosenthal at the Lucky Well. Chad knew the business. Chad is a white man. But Chad just like, look, I can't make, I'm not going to go and steal Vietnamese cuisine, you know, things. I want to incorporate. I'm going to hire these chefs, give them this incubated space, make the best damn food and have a good time. I, I swear to you all, I can never stop thinking about the great experience I had last year with my husband, Amanda and Joe. We all, the four of us, just really ate that food. And that food was so good because they were made by the people who originated those, the, the, the whole concepts behind those dishes. I mean, they just were phenomenal. You know, Chad could have been a colonizer, a culinary colonizer. He could have just said, you know what? I'm going to just go here and study these people's dishes. And I'm just going to cook them in my own restaurant. No, he brought them in, gave them exposure. And now some of them have moved on. They're being executive chefs at other restaurants where they can take their food to the next level. We love to see it. Okay, so for Black History Month, we ain't stealing. We ain't stealing Black History Month. We ain't still in Women's History Month. We ain't still in Prime. We ain't still in none of these months, okay? But just be mindful. That's all. So my second Ask Ernest question was about silence. Um, you all saw a post I was talking about in regards to what I think moving in silence is one of the worst pieces of advice that we have given in black and brown communities. And people wanted to know more about why I was thinking like this, what happened, yada, yada, yada. So, you know, over the weekend, I was spending my lovely time with Mr. Johnson for his birthday and everything. And somebody got in my DMs um, and kind of made this note about like, oh, you know, how do you feel about posting, you know, all the places you going and doing, you know, you know, a word of advice. You got to move in silence. You know, people can't see all your moves and yada, yada, yada. Just going to this thing. And I just thought to myself. For what, for some reason, that just pissed me off. And normally I don't get pissed off by dumb shit people advise. A lot of people just want to give me unsolicited advice that I don't ask for and quite frankly don't need. I mean, you all, some some of you are not, not real supporters, but there are always people who just, I don't know, feel cavalier to get in my DMs and tell me something, whether it's about my weight, whether it's about... The way I'm wearing an outfit, you know, if it's got too many colors, you know, all types of shit, you know. And it's like, who the fuck are you? And you know what I do, y'all? A lot of times I just don't, I don't respond back. I don't respond back. Um, sometimes I will block, depending on the nature. Sometimes I just leave, leave on red. And then I see the person in person and they should have come up to me. I look at them like I don't know who they are. I look at them like an alien. Um, yeah, I just don't need people's unsolicited advice where it's not warranted. I don't. And I think we in society have to get used to telling people, no, thank you. When people want to interject their own ideas on us, we, we sometimes feel like obligated to receive advice from people, but like check the source. Everyone has an opinion about everything. Everybody has an opinion about what to do, what to do. And it's like, I'm at a point in my life where I recognize 
every advice that people give me is not warranted of a, of a response, a consideration, or any of those type of things. And where I'm at in my career, I have a team. I have consultants. I have friends and family and people that I trust that I will, you know, consider things from. If you're not that person at designated team, I really don't want your advice um, if it's pertaining to my personal life. Now, there are some times when people will say things like, oh, you know, I would love you to do a podcast. Well, baby, give me some podcast money. I, mean, I didn't have the podcast money, but like people just throw stuff. I want to see on a TV show. Bitch, you my producer. Like I just, it, it just sometimes it gets annoying because it's like, do you even know what my goals are? Do you even know what my dreams are? Do you even know, have you ever considered maybe that what you think is what is for me, I can go harder, I can go bigger, and that I can aim for something? I remember for a long time, people just tried to read my goals. They were like, oh, I could see you on CNN. I don't even want to be on fucking CNN. Definitely not anymore now. Um, I really don't. I, I don't find that interesting. I remember for a period of time when I was writing, you know, folks are like, oh my goodness, like, you know, when are you going to go at the Inquirer? You know, you you know, and, and people get really d- disrespectful. They'll say, oh, and you could be the real reporter you want to be. Baby, I'm already a real reporter. I'm sorry that you think that the Inquirer defines a real reporter. But, uh, child, they're, they're, please, I have reported so well that the Inquirer has had to cite me numerous times and have had to follow the lead of the work that I led, okay, in order to catch up. Baby, I don't, I don't, I don't need a place like that to define my work. Some of y'all listeners may be like, really? People said that? Yes, people have said this. I've heard the, oh, you know, one day you're going to be at the New York Times. But why is that the goal for y'all one day? What if I've already written there a couple of times and it was good enough for me and I'm good? I don't really need to be there for anything. But again, this is people who are not one in my industry Two, not in my world, don't understand my vision for what I want to do for my life and have made assumptions based on their projections about their life. So when I tell you all that living in Philadelphia is a choice, I absolutely mean it. If I wanted to go to L.A., I could go to L.A. If I want a job in L.A., I could get a job in L.A. If I wanted to live in New York City, I could live in New York City. If I wanted a job in New York City, I could get a job in New York City. Like, I get a job anywhere I want in the fucking United States. And even London, too, because I'm that bitch. I'm just being 100. And I can give you receipts. There are opportunities in all of these places I just named. And I could go there if I wanted to. I go to Atlanta. I could go to Houston. I could go anywhere I want in the United States and get a job. Not that it's any of your business, but I also have a husband who has a career. I also like the living I have in Philadelphia, and my friends know that. I like being the king of Philadelphia, as Nina will put it, or the mayor. She calls me the mayor, the king of Philadelphia. I like being the king of Philadelphia. I, I quite frankly, don't want to go to New York and have to reinvent myself all the way or have to deal with the social politics of New York City. I just don't care for it. Um, L.A., I would definitely blend in faster in L.A. I know that for a fact. But also, L.A. is just too much, just too much. It's fun for a weekend. It's fun for a week. But I couldn't live like that. I, I mean, Because the lifestyle I live, it would just be over the top. It, it, like I know there's people that live in LA. They'd be like, oh, it's okay to live here, baby. But you're not living like me. It would be too much. It would be too much. It would be too much. 
So I love Philly. I love that if I want to go to D, oh, I could go to DC. I could easily go wherever I want. I love that I'm in an area where if I want to go to DC, I could. If I need to go to New York for work, I could go to New York for some work. I could do different things. But don't get it twisted. Just because I live in Philadelphia don't mean I don't get checks from, from the West Coast to East Coast. I have to get, every time I do my taxes, I get checks from LA. I got to account for those. I get New York checks. I've got a DC checks. I get Great Britain checks. I get a lot of checks from different parts of the country and have to work on that on my taxes and make sure all that's straightened out. So it's not a thing. Any of the places I've written for have asked me, could you come, what would it take for you to come down here and work for us full time? And I said, nothing, baby. My freedom is priceless. These are choices. So, you know, people that just be thinking that Ernest Media Empire as a business is just a temporary situation. It's not. It's a permanent fixture. I love the way I work. I love the control I have, the creative control I have, the the actual copyright control I have of my work. I love that I can call my own shots. I can say yes. I can say no. I can say maybe. I can say so. I love that because in this industry, if you listen carefully, how many of your faves are consistently complaining about the lack of agency that they have in their careers? And that a lot of them get burnt out, washed up, don't want to be in the industry no more, get into drugs, alcoholism, and depression because of the fact that they got duped and bamboozled. I hear more stories like that than stories like mine. And until we get to the latter more than the former, then it's going to be ever, forever me working this way because I refuse to do any other way. And so I say all this to say that when people have these conversations about moving in silence, if I moved in silence the way that you all think it works, I would not be here. Throughout my life, I was always told to move in silence. Move in silence about your achievements as a smart black person in Ivy League school. Move in silence about your sexuality. Everybody got to know your business. Everybody got to know who you in the bed with. Says a straight man who loves to tell everybody how many bodies, quote unquote, he's had in his life. Um, I was told to move in silence about my achievements and my awards. You know, oh, why you got to put a award-winning journalist? You know, why, why can't it just be? Because I got a my motherfucking awards. And not just any awards, national awards. Sit your ass down. But I was always told to move in silence because of they and they and they and they and they. They don't want this. They don't want this. And I was just sitting back and I'm just like, well, for me, it was like, if I'm moving in silence, if, if everybody is supposed to move in silence as a mood of a mode of, uh, you know, thoughtfulness, whatever, then how do we get inspiration? Because when I look at the people that have inspired me in my career, they were out. They were proud. They were people who had courage and integrity. And there were people that, that took risks and made the difference. How do you get inspiration? How can you be inspirational if you're moving in silence? If no one knows what you're doing, how you're moving, how do people get inspired? People who did not move in silence, M okay. Malcolm, I mean, yeah, Malcolm, yeah, Malcolm didn't. Um, you know, Chisholm didn't. Lord didn't. Rustin didn't. Baldwin didn't. Sojourner Truth didn't. Tubman did it. They didn't do it. 
They didn't move in silence. And, and I'm going to get somewhere with what I mean by this. They were people who were very clear publicly about what they stood on. They, they were very clear about what they believed and, and, and what they meant. And that intimidated people, but it also liberated people. And while it scared some people, it also inspired some people. And while it ruffled some people, it also radicalized some people. And while it might have given them some hardships, it also gave people the tools to empower themselves. And so when I hear people talk about moving in silence, I ask myself, who is that for? Because if you're trying to do collective work, if you're trying to make an impact, then moving in silence only serves you. And if you don't want to make an impact for other people and you worry about yourself, then you can do that. Moving in silence works if you're a selfish motherfucker. I'm sorry. If you're somebody that's worried about yourself and your own business and your own money, then move in silence, right? Because let me tell you why I feel about this moving in silence, right? Moving in silence to me in this type of way, you're doing some scammy shit or you don't want to be accountable. See, when you move in silence no, and no one knows what you're doing, then no one can hold you accountable, which means that you're able to navigate and bullshit and do whatever to make it to the top because you don't have to answer to anybody or you don't have to be accountable to community. So there are little areas where you can slide through the cracks. And a lot of people love to do that as a means of being quote unquote successful. Yeah, and they get individual success. But the problem with individual success and achievement is that's why we as a community have not moved forward because there's too much individual thinking and not enough collective thinking. And so there are people that will say, well, what about MLK when they was coming up with their plans and they were strategizing this? Okay, that's not moving in silence. It's being strategic. And yes, when you are someone who is public facing and you're doing things, you're, you're you know doing what you're doing, Yes, you, there comes a time where you can have some privacy, right, to, to make some decisions and think things through a little bit, but your overall effect should not be in silence. And that's not actually silence. I'm a wordsmith, okay? I'm big on words and their meanings and their context. If what you're saying is strategy, if you're saying discernment, are you saying thoroughness? Are you saying reflectiveness? Maybe you're meaning other things than silence. But the fact that you're moving silence as a, you know, um, synonym for these types of actions is very telling. And the problem is people just love to adapt rap lyrics to justify what they do. Everybody want to be the American gangster that Jay-Z was rapping about. Everybody want to be the gangster moving in silence that Lil Wayne referenced. Y'all, like, like, it's so fucking annoying. And it's really a fucking Gen, Gen Xer problem because Gen Xers, I mean, I know hip-hop has a stranglehold on y'all, old hip-hop, but like, there has to be a point in time where you criticize young people for their standom, but you stand too for the things you like. You obsess. You think these people are gods and prophets. And it's like, oh, shut up. Like, 
Some of that shit that they're saying is just cute for a song. No rhyme or reason. And if you really base your philosophy on rap lyrics and songs from these people, my God. Like, you're no worse than the kids you're, you're getting mad at. And you wonder where the kids got it from. They got it from you. Parents, grandparents, uncles and shit. They got it from you. So it's just interesting. But nonetheless, um, I say all this to say that as a black queer man who's lived my life, I just don't have a need to live in silence. I just don't. I don't. You know, I, I think being who I am, how I am, is serving as inspiration to so many people um, to aspire, to know it's real, to not feel erased, to, to not let anybody continually act like every five, ten years, this is the first time this ever happened when it wasn't, that we've been in the society, we've been around forever, that our existence worked, that everything isn't doom and gloom, that there is some beauty in this madness, and that there is still opportunity and hope. And so when others say move in silence, I say move out loud and proud because it's not about you. It's about inspiring people. It's about really building change. And I say this because connecting this again to full circle about not being in silence. I think about Kelly Rowland's experience about her not speaking, about her putting her foot down. I never talked about this before, but I'll share it briefly. There was a radio interview that I had for, for my book. And I was on tour, city to city, and we was invited to come on this radio station and do this interview. It was a good radio station or no radio station. It was not the Breakfast Club. Let me get y'all together. We don't do Breakfast Club over here. We just don't. But pretty much the station I was going to be on, um, that was a good opportunity. I got there. Okay, so... I was scheduled to come on air. Um, they told me 10.30 was my call time. I arrived at the station at 9.45 a.m. So that's about 45 minutes. I wanted to come on time because one, I wanted to warm up. I wanted to be in my green room. I wanted to be ready. I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to be in a good space mentally. I didn't want to feel like I was coming in and out, you know, like that. I get there. They know I'm there. I'm seated. Everything's good. So then we get to about 1030. I'm ready. I'm told, oh, the host wants to continue to have this conversation with another guest. They're going to stay. They're going to keep the guest on for a little, a little, a little five to 10 minutes. I'm like, okay, cool. Cool, 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 cool. You know, um, my segment was supposed to be about 20 minutes. So we were really happy to do the interview because we were going to do a good meaty interview, like a really good meaty interview. And so I was really excited because this is an opportunity for my book to get a wide national audience. Um, that was the aim. This host, five minutes passed, 10 minutes passed. Okay, we now at about 10.45 a.m. And they're like, um, we're we going to do a couple of minutes and then we're going to get to you on a break. So I'm like, all right, but this is eating my time. Because I need to be out of there at 11 o'clock. That was the plan. Ciao. 
It was 5.55 a.m. They come to me and they're like, oh, we're ready for you, you know, but um, it's going to be quick. You know what I'm saying? You've got five minutes to do your thing. And then, you know, and then, you know, you know, that's that. But we, we ready for you, ready for you. I said, no. I said, no. I said, I'm going to go. I said, this was fine. This was good. I just said, I just did not appreciate um, my time. And my publicist was like, yo, like, you know, they weren't mad. They weren't mad. I, I just said, I, I can't explain this topic on council culture in this type of way for five minutes. I said, there were several questions I was given. You know, I prepped, I worked for this and I'm sitting here and it's not because of technical difficulties, but because this radio show guy wants to keep this conversation going with a dumb idiot that he was in. It, was, it wasn't even like a big guest or like a politician or anything. It was like some guy before me that was talking about the battle of gender, sexism, and things. And, you know, again, I tried to be respectful. Like I came at 945, you know, just to be present, you know, to be there, right? To take this seriously. And you're telling me my segment starts at 1030. Cool. So I'm thinking, you know, look, 1030 to 1050, you know, a good 20 minute segment with some callers and conversation. You do all that to tell me that I got to hurry. The, the, the producer is like telling me you've got five minutes, you know, make it tight, make it, you know, what, how do we go from 20 minutes to five minutes? And so I'm at this studio for more than an hour. You know, I'm here. You know, my time is precious or you didn't. And you thought you was doing me a favor. So I said, no. I was not going to do that to my work. I wasn't going to do it to myself and I wasn't going to have it. And I could have been silent. I could have been passive. I could have just went with the flow. But quite frankly, if they disrespect you like that, they'll do it again and again and again. And at some point you got to put your foot down and say no. So that's what I did. So I don't, I don't move in silence. I just don't. It's not for me. So moving along, um, I did see JLo's new movie. Um, it's only 65 minutes, y'all. So it's only by hour. And, and, you know, she, you know. Look, I don't know how I, well, okay. If you take the movie seriously, it's a mess. If you watch it with the sense of J-Lo is gagging her own self, you will find it funny and entertaining. The cameos were all over the place. I mean, in a way that's like everybody's in this goddamn movie. Um... I found it cute. It's cute. It's corny. It's cheesy. It's silly. It's campy. Um, and so I enjoyed it for the campiness. Will I watch it again? Mm, probably not. Um, but it was good to watch one good time in Kiki. I don't necessarily need to watch it multiple times. But it was cute. Um, my million dollar question is, why is J-Lo still trying to do music? The acting is where it's at for her. I don't know why she keeps trying to force music on us. I don't need any new music. Especially if the ghost of Ashanti is not on the verses, baby. I want Ashanti J-Lo, okay? I want Ashanti vocals if it's going to be a J-Lo track. I think that's why I haven't liked the music lately. Because the past 10 years, she ain't had a hit to me since On the Floor. And that was with Pitbull. This new music she's been doing, I just, I, I just find it corny. And I do believe it's her singing, which is why I find it corny. Um, but, you know, J-Lo is just, J-Lo just has, J-Lo is just J-Lo. She look good, though. She always look good. You can't take that from J-Lo. J-Lo's going to always look good. And J-Lo has talent. Sometimes the talent is misplaced, but J-Lo does have talent. I will give her that. She is an entertainer. I will give her that.
So to music, um, the new Ariana Grande, Mariah Carey collaboration on this Yes and remix. I'll just say this. Mariah is the queen of remixes and Mariah knows what a remix is. And this is not a remix, but it is cute. It works. I don't know if it makes me listen to this song long more. I like the original and Yes and more. But I don't mind this Mariah Carey little collab. I think Mariah Carey is trying to get another number one. Okay, that's what I feel. I feel like Mariah is trying to get her 20th number one on Billboard. I think she's trying to either tie with the with the, with the the uh, Beatles or something. But I, I get a sense that she's trying to do her big one and get this number one on Billboard. Because, you know, she wants to keep the, the track going. She's has a number one in every decade. And I think she wants a fresh number one. Because All I Want For Christmas Is You... That's cool, but she's a new number one. And I kept trying to figure out what would be her next number one. And so she's made old songs go number one. Now she's got to get on these songs. So the Mariah Carey Ariana Grande collab is unexpected but beautiful. You know, for a long time, people have compared Ariana Grande to a, a younger Mariah when she first came out. And Mariah can sing, and I mean, clearly can sing, but Ariana Grande can sing. She can sing. She has a lot of other shit that she don't need to be doing, per se. But vocally, you can't deny her talent. So that's pleasant. Um, but yeah, I really, really like that. I really like the whole Yes And song. And I get it. Hopefully it goes number one. But first, we got to let Beyonce go number one. Texas Hold'em needs to go number one. We need to keep her. You know, everybody needs to get a chance on these on these shot on these um on these these uh you know these charts. Cause I don't know why everybody keeps letting Jack Harlow get number one, okay? Loving on me, whatever the hell that song is, is giving payola. I don't see it, y'all. Do y'all know something? I don't know. I mean, the song is okay, but I don't get why it just consistently stays on the charts. I'm just not impressed, personally. Um, but you know, stranger things have happened. So moving along. Um, this Chris Brown thing. I gotta talk about it. I, I was, I, I, I'm getting tired of Chris Brown fans. Look, y'all can still stand for that man. That's y'all prerogative. I can't take that from y'all. But I'm getting tired of narratives. So the recent narrative around Chris Brown has been that I guess people feel like he can't get a break. That no matter how much he tries, he's always gonna find himself in this type of predicament where it's damned if he do and damned if he don't. And, you know, to a certain extent, I don't believe none of that, okay? Like, it's just bullshit. Because in this latest situation, we're reminded yet again. So, apparently the NBA had invited him to participate in the Celebrity All-Star Game. He was invited to participate. You know, everybody knows Chris Brown can play some basketball. That is just a fact. He can play. Um, But apparently at the last minute, there was a reversal in fortune where he was told that his invitation was rescinded. And apparently the allegation was that some sponsors felt uncomfortable with working with him. You know, Ruffles, Potato Chips in particular, apparently, allegedly at the time, he was claiming that they had an issue with him and the brands did working with him or collaborating with him. Um, as a result, he took the social media, call it out and put it out there. Of course, his fans were all like, you know, I guess he ruffled some feathers. And began to talk about they were going to boycott Ruffles 
And, you know, he starts going this tirade about how he's a man trying to move on, but nobody wants to let it go. What he did years ago, yada, yada, yada. And of course, several fans decided to get in there and say, you know, well, if this is something this man did years ago, how can we keep holding this on him? Like, let it go. It was 15 years ago. It was in 2009. It's 2024. And this is in regards to the Rihanna uh, incident where Chris Brown assaulted her. And, you know, we all know what happened. Um, so they're just saying, like, at some point, where's the redemption arc? This man did this in his teens. You know, and, and it's all this. And he's just like, you know, I'm forever being tried, you know, for something I did. And, uh, you know, where is the, where can people let it go and move on? That That's the narrative, right? Okay. And so then, interesting enough, uh, somebody who's just so, just dumb, um, Tamika Mallory, who is, you know, she refers to herself as an activist. You know, we'll just, you know, that's how she refers to herself. Um, I went viral, uh, did a thread where I addressed some of the things that she said. So she said on Instagram when uh, the Shade Room had posted this, does there come a point when a younger person who did something wrong gets to move forward or does he hold them to their actions or do we hold them to their actions forever? Does it matter that Rihanna, the victim, moved on? Should we pick up the ball and run with it? Is there something Chris Brown should be doing or should have done to earn back the respect of the people? How should we talk to our young people about redemption or the absence of such? These are not rhetorical questions. I really want to get a sense of how people genuinely feel. And let me say up front, I don't follow Chris Brown news, so I don't know all the details. My intention is to provoke a conversation that's bigger than one person. And this, by definition, is bird behavior. Here's the part that I'm going to just say, and this is where she should have just ended everything at. Quote, and let me say up front, I don't know Chris Brown news, so I don't know all the details. And that is the point that when you wrote that, Tamika, you should have said to yourself, wait a minute, let me just go ahead and not even write this. Let me just erase all of what I just said, because I actually don't know the details. So let me shut the fuck up. How do you provoke a conversation predicated on a false pretense? The pretense is wrong. The context is wrong. The framing is wrong. And so therefore, starting this conversation off wrong and acknowledging in the framing that you don't know the details is hella harmful and fucked up. And so, you know, I would used to think that Tamika Mallory was as naive. No, she's not. She has a history of caping for problematic ass people. Look up her and Russell Simmons. Just look it up. Look at how she disparaged, you know, Tamir Rice's mother when trying to defend Sean King. Her track record is fucked up. And so honestly, it's no surprise that that was her response and her reaction. People will show you who they are so many times and you want to believe and you want to give people grace. But at a certain point, what you're doing is harmful. So let me just start off by saying that Chris Brown's consistent atrocities is not solely based on a Rihanna incident. And you know what? If it was, so fucking what? But it's not. It was the catalyst to a history, an over decades long history of violence towards women and towards other people. I mean, where do I start? Do we want to talk about the restraining order with Karuchi Tran? Are we going to forget that the woman that he ended up dating after Rihanna also experienced a very hostile man in Chris Brown? 
Are we just going to ignore the whole saga with Cruci Tran? Are we going to ignore the subsequent violent acts that he's had, his acknowledgement of being affiliated with a gang, his behavior? Like, I mean, there were reports last year they were trying to fight Usher. You know, we, we, you know, and that all got squabbled. But like, this man is out of fucking control. He's always getting into it. He's always in some violent shit. And at some point, you got to take a step back and go, okay, is this really, like, are we really acting like this is not a hothead? Like, when I think about hotheads in the industry right now, the top hotheads is the baby, it is Chris Brown, and it is Trey Songs. One thing about Trey Songs, he going to put his hands on you. I mean, he always going to put his hands on somebody. And Chris Brown has always find himself in a situation where there's always violence. I mean, the Drake situation with him, it's just always some shit with him. And at some point, it's the crew you hang out with. It's the, it's the, it's the whole thing. Like, what the fuck, you know? And so it's just like, if we keep acting like it's about the Rihanna incident, then we are basically being woefully obtuse. We're choosing to ignore everything else to defend somebody. So if this is your friend, Tamika, and you're just a big old little groupie and you want to just be in proximity to this man and his clout or whatever, just say that. But there's no reason for you to say anything because you didn't know what the fuck you were talking about and you acknowledge that. So why get on here and create a framework that's predicated off of bullshit? Because she knew what she was doing and she rightfully so got ate up on social media for it because it was bird behavior. And it's very disappointing to see certain people in the community get into those type of roles because it's like, come on, you you know better. You should know better. But the choice to not is, is that that's what people tell you. Like, how are you aligning yourself along a man who has a record of domestic violence? How do you do that? But, oh, you, you, you did the women's march, though. Whatever. I just tell you that there are people who will be anything and everything for a check, anything and everything to be relevant, and they don't have a grounding principle or a, a or or, or a, an ounce of integrity or a fucking spine to 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 rise above this type of shit. Period. Wasn't a fan, still not a fan, and this is an example why I will never be a fan. And to answer the question, Ruffles did respond on social media with a statement basically saying that they didn't have anything to do with that. So clearly somebody's lying. And I'm not saying Chris Brown is lying, but I I'm, I don't know why people don't look at the NBA, the NFL, these, these leagues, because these leagues be lying. And so they threw probably Ruffles under the bus, but it was probably them. It was probably them. And they didn't want to say that, but, you know, come on. You invited somebody, you uninvite them. Somewhere along the mist, there was an issue. But, you know, at the end of the day, I don't feel bad for Chris Brown because the truth of the matter is Chris Brown still has a career. Most people in society that did, if they would have done what Chris Brown did, they would have been in jail for a period of time and they would have never had a career. We over here acting like, oh my God, Chris Brown has been canceled. No, Chris Brown never really got canceled. Chris Brown is going on to win Grammys. Well, a Grammy, a Grammy. He consistently has sold out tours. He has had multiple platinum selling albums. He has, to be honest, has outpaced. A, he's had a long career. His career is fairly successful. 
Like if you look at the 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 number of artists that have come out in the past 25 years or in the 21st century, Chris Brown is in the top 20 of 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 of, of artists that came out in this this century that is successful. Like I'm talking they weren't in the 90s. Like Beyonce is not a 21st century artist. Like she she started in the 90s. I'm talking about artists that came out in the 21st century and have had longevity. Chris Brown is one of those people. Like Rihanna. Rihanna is on that list. Ariana Grande is on that list. Um, Ed Sheeran, Taylor Swift, Chris Brown. I would say Nicki Minaj. You know, um, these are artists that came out in the 2000s. The, 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 the 21st century that have had a long, long, a long standing career. You know, I would even say Kanye because Kanye came out in the 2000s officially. Um, so I would say that the, he's one of those great 21st century artists based on his longevity in music. So you can't, you can't take that from him. You know, I would add Bruno Mars on that list too. The weekend as well. But, but Chris Brown has a place. Um, you know, so so I, to a certain extent, I just feel like you all, people are, are, are talking about how far he could have went. You don't know. And here's the thing. Every artist is going to have what they're going to have. This whole, well, you know, if they didn't do that, he would have been my, Michael Jackson. Maybe. Maybe not. But you know what? It says something that in spite of everything, he is still out here making music and still out here making millions of dollars and still has a career. He owns the masters of his work. Like, y'all keep trying to frame it like, oh, Chris Brown going down bad. Oh, my God. Chris Brown, you know, has gone down bad. Like, he's just suffering and he's just can't, you know, people can't let go. The fuck? I think a lot of people have let go of what he's done. And to be honest, it's been him who's been sabotaging his career. It has never been just about the one incident with Rihanna. Honestly, if it was just the Rihanna incident... I feel like he would be back on his feet. Listen, there have been many artists and, and entertainers that have done a bad, really bad thing and was able to recover. I think about Mariah Carey. Well, she didn't do a bad thing, but she had a, a meltdown and was able to get back on her feet and get her career popping. And we don't even think about glitter anymore. Um, I'm thinking about uh, Robert Downing Jr. He had a couple of issues in his career and then he bounced back. And so the the issue with Chris Brown is that Chris Brown feels entitled to be who he is and whine like a baby every time he doesn't get his fucking way. And it's like, you got to recognize your current behavior. It's always, a, I'm trying to work on being a better person. You said that last year and the year before that and the year before that. How many times you don't keep working on yourself? And the luxury is that he works on himself while fucking up and, we, and people still feel bad for him. It's the colorism for me. Because if Chris Brown was dark-skinned, the way that we talk about him and we emphasize him as a baby and treat him like he's a man who makes mistakes, that's a grown-ass man. He's grown, y'all. He's not the little boy that y'all remember in, you know, back in the day when he was singing them little, them little teeny bops. He's not that dude anymore. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. So, um, in TV, I've been watching... Truman and the Swans, which, uh, or Capote and the Swans. It's Capote because it's Truman, Truman Capote. So it's Capote and the Swans, I believe it's called. Um, and it's very good. Like I've been telling you, every episode has been really good. Um, 
I love it. I love it. And it's called Capote versus the Swans. Let me correct. It's called Capote versus the Swans. And it is so good. I've been watching every episode. Um, so far, I'm up on episode um, episode four. Episode five comes out this week. Um, and it's it's giving, y'all. It's giving. It's a great miniseries. And I'm really falling for this show. Um, I thought it was going to be, you know... This little show where, but it's an eight episode season. So we're halfway into this episode and I'm really feeling it. So if you have not watched it, catch up on it on um, FX. Also, another show that I've been watching um, that I've really been feeling is, um, you know, Abbott Elementary. An incredible show. Abbott Elementary is, this season is fire. And every episode so far has been nothing but great. Um, so I'm really feeling the vibes and the energy. Um, and I really think it's great. I, I really do. I really think it's been great um, so far. I mean, the cameos, I don't want to tell too much because I know these episodes are fairly new. But they're just doing it. They're really doing it. I feel like they have found their groove. They're in their winning season. I really want this show to win Best Comedy. I know how hard it is because the Bear season three is coming out this summer. And by that time, the Emmys are going to be looking at the Bear season two. And Abbott Elementary is going to be up for season um, for season this season. Season three will be in consideration while the Bear season two will. But I think the Bears new little 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 trick has been with Emmys consideration is that because the calendar got moved very fast because of the writer's strike, people are giving Emmys based off of the older, the, 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 the newer season, even though that's not the one in consideration. Does that make sense? So, okay. The Bear season two came out last, last year, last summer. People who was voting for the Emmys watched both two seasons. And so they loved those two seasons that they thought of the bear for those awards for awards that quite frankly i don't think season one should have got as many but because season two was good and they watched that because everything was out at once they were thinking in a mindset of this as a co co as a collective thing and so i could see that happening and that's what happened interesting enough if you with that logic right when the bear is in consideration for emmys again for season two some people might be like, oh, I gave the Bear Awards. Like, I don't know. I'm, I'm into this new season at Abbott Elementary that's fresh. The, the, the writing is good. I want to award it. But the Bear is going, ah, 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 season three. Even though season three is not a consideration for voters who are watching season three, during the time they're dropping it will be when the voting begins for the Emmy nominations. They might get so caught up in the new season of Bear that when they're voting, they're on the high of the Bear and Abbott Elementary season three will be over by then. And so then the, the Bear is back in the conversation, in the media, in the attention, in the campaign that the Bear is going to sweep again in the Emmys this fall. That's my prediction. What do I know? I just, I'm just someone who sits on a regional board for the Emmys. I'm just, 
I know how this shit goes because now I'm inside. The strategy by the bear is genius. However, I'm annoyed because I too would like to see Abbott win a best comedy Emmy. But it just looks like what the bear is doing right now is they're on their run right now. Drama is interesting because Succession is out. You know, it's, it's the, the final season happened. They did their big one. They did their grand sweep. Everybody got their big ones, okay? Now the question is, who's going to be the next new drama that's going to be in conversation for this win for the drama series? Um, we'll see. You know, it's going to be interesting. What What is going to be the new hot drama? Um, I don't know if it's going to be The Crown. People have been saying, you know, The Crown... Just did that final season. You know, the, the crown is over now. And so some people are like, maybe the crown might get it. But I feel like it's the crown has had such a, you know, it kind of ended. And a lot of people weren't enthusiastic about it. That the, the final season of the crown just kind of came and went. Um, I don't I don't see it really taking up much personally. I don't I don't see it. I could be wrong. But that's not what I'm sensing. I'm always going to get that that drama. There's going to have to be a new TV show. Honestly, they should move the bear to drama and keep Abbott at comedy. Because to be honest, the bear isn't a comedy. The bear is really a drama. The bear should go to the drama category and then Abbott should have comedy. They're not going to do that, though. But they should. Because I feel like the bear would still win in drama. And it's more dramatic than com comedic, in my opinion. I cried more than I laughed watching The Bear. I actually found it more gut-wrenching and, 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 and emotional than comedic and hilarious and humorous. But what do I know? You know, white people like black comedy. They might think it's comedic. I don't know. But that's just some observations I've made. Um, but overall, um, I'm super excited about um, all the things coming up uh, this week. There's a lot of great opportunities, some cool surprises. You know, I'm just I'm just taking it all in. Um, but this month has been a very good month so far. I, I've enjoyed this romantic celebratory moment. So, as always, be well and be best. Earnestly speaking is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. To stay up to date with the latest on the show, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Mr. Ernest Owens. Use the hashtag Ernestly Speaking to tell me what you thought about this episode and check out my website at ernestowens.com.